And hello for the inaugural episode of Through the Years, which is an idea Matt came up with, and I'm very happy that he asked me to do this, where we're going to kind of do something. I don't think that anyone else has done this yet. I was looking. If someone has, feel free to contact us. I'll give out some contact info later. But um, I don't think anyone's done a chronological Ring of Honor review show, where people review show by show, episode by episode. Uh, they've done it with a lot of other companies, but I don't think they've ever done it with this. And I think we're both pretty big fans of the company's older days. And I also think when I was really, when we did the List them and Learn episode, for those who haven't checked that out, that's uh, Matt's great podcast where he counts down, well, he lists things and then sometimes we learn. But we did one about the top 10 wrestlers in Ring of Honor history. And I think one thing I learned, realized going back and doing that is I think this is 15 years is kind of the perfect time to take a look back, I think. What do you think? Well, Matt? first of all, yes, Hobbs, I, uh, <laughs> we have not introduced ourselves yet, but um, that, was, uh, that was everybody's favorite, Hobbs, and I am Matt Feuerstein. Um, and yeah, and by the way, through the years, spelled T-H-R-O-H, for those searching for it on, uh, on Google. Well, I, got, we got a, um, I know that was your, uh, your concern with the name, but I think we'll, uh, I think we'll get through it. Um, yeah, I think um, you know, there are a lot of podcasts out there, or at least some, that are you know, chronological review shows. Um, my favorite being uh, Where the Big Boys Play, uh, where um, Chad and Parv review the, uh, the WCW uh, uh, big events going back all the way to the early Starcades, and uh, it you know between that and the uh, the uh, honor roll top fifty wrestlers project, and the ROH fifteenth anniversary, and all the news now with uh, whatever's going on with ROH and WWE, I uh, I thought it was a like you said a good time to go back and um, and uh, just look you know first of all it's uh, fun for me to go back and watch all those old shows, but just to Go uh, show by show and kind of see where ROH has been, um, possibly where it's going. Um, I have no idea how long we're going to keep this up for, but I'd like to go for at least uh, a pretty long time. Uh, you know, there's a lot of years of great stuff that I just remember to get through. And then there are a bunch of shows along the way, especially in the first couple of years that I've only maybe watched once. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to this. Yeah, me, me too. Um there, even a lot of my favorite kind of shows have gotten to the point where it's been a few years, even the ones I really used to watch a lot. So I'm actually really interested in trying to kind of see how my uh, tastes line up now compared to then. Because, again, with the 15 years, I think we're just at that point where enough time has passed where there might be some things that worked then that didn't work now. I think that'll be real interesting to see. And, yeah, I mean... Even if we got halfway through, there's so much to cover before we conked out on this podcast. Yeah, for sure. There's Even if we got like a third of the way through, we'd still be going through a lot of pretty memorable stuff. So, uh, so like I said, I'm looking forward to it. But um, I guess uh, before we actually get started, because today's episode, we're going to be reviewing the very first Ring of Honor show, right? Era of Honor Begins. And uh, boy, things were different. But I think before we get to that, we should probably contextualize uh, Ring of Honor as far as where what it was at the time, what it is now, uh, what it is to us, and uh, and all that jazz. 
Okay, yeah, um, we talked about a little bit about this on the list of and learn, but I think it's worth repeating even for those that did hear. But I think for me personally, Ring of Honor was kind of the thing that kept me in wrestling in the early to mid 2000s, right when I was starting to kind of, right at a time when I felt like WWE was getting stale and I was kind of breaking away. It was my entry into independent wrestling. It was my entry into like buying a, a, from a, tapes from a promotion month after month rather than just, I'm going to buy this random eight-hour block of Japanese wrestling and nurse it for a couple months. It was, no, every two or three months, I'm going to make my order. I'm looking forward to it. I want every show you know that comes out. And now as someone who sees a lot of other U.S. indie wrestling, I kind of... You know, Ring of Honor went in a direction that, you know, I, I don't think Ring of Honor is horrible now, but it's certainly not what it was when I was first drawn to it. And also, quite frankly, Ring of Honor has influenced so many companies. There's just more options now if you want that kind of product than I think when we first discovered it. Yeah, I think ROH today puts out good events um, for sure. Uh, you know, the well-produced events, I think the booking is often at least pretty good, Um, but it's not on the cutting edge anymore. I think, well, we could agree with that, but at its peak, I'd say it was pretty close to what the cutting edge was in American wrestling, as far as the the style it presented, the way it presented it. Um, You know, like, I think for me, similarly, uh, it was my entry into independent wrestling. I still haven't gotten as into independent wrestling, I think, as you have. I don't know, just... um, and it just seems overwhelming to me to like follow all the promotions and and all that stuff. You know, there are a few that I that I follow. You know, I, I'm I'm always at least looking at what happens at PWG, even if I don't see the shows. And you know, evolve and you know, I still haven't really gotten into like the the real like indie indie scene where you're you're watching the real up and comers and like the kind of the local scene. But um, but ROH, you know, like it was. In the, you know, in the early to mid-2000s, I, there's a lot that I enjoyed about WWE, honestly, but there was also a lot of really frustrating stuff that was going on there. Mm-hmm. And, the, uh, and the idea that you know, there was no WCW, there was no ECW. TNA, um, for most of its run, you know, say for maybe about like a year and a half or two years, was you know, always disappointing or just flat-out bad. So the idea that you know, there was this company out there that was getting all this praise, and it sort of had this cool, like, exclusive vibe, at least by this, my, the standards that I was used to, was very appealing to me. And then when I first went to ROH uh, in 2005, you know, I'd seen, you know, I'd definitely, you know, seen some of the matches, um, you know, I guess uh, downloaded uh, uh, <laughs> in uh, extra legal means. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I started going in 2005, and I, then I just, it was, it, sold me immediately and then I um, I just bought all the back DVDs like I, I got everything going back to 2002 and I uh, and then I bought every DVD going forward for a couple of years there and go to every ROH show that I could that was in driving distance whether that was uh, in Manhattan or Long Island or uh, or Philly or Connecticut or Jersey you know I just I, I, it's it's amazing to think back now about how much money I spent on ROH, so I don't feel guilty about about downloading those matches uh, previously. But um, yeah, it not only kept me uh, involved in wrestling, but it was like a huge like it was a major like 
almost like social uh, central point in my life for a couple of years there, like uh, in the, a couple of years right after I graduated college and I was a little bit aimless. I uh, I don't know if it I don't know if it it made me more aimless or not, but it certainly uh, was you know something that I spent a lot of time either watching or attending. Um, probably uh, kept me from getting uh, falling too deeply at least into like a post-college depression <laughs> and then um i think probably once the ben y incidents happened in 07 i slowly like faded out and that was also around the time where i think the uh the electricity around the company was kind of fading away so it was just uh you know and then i would just go more and more sporadically and um but but like these early shows, I, I remember, you know, I said I, I saw the the main event of the first show before I got into ROH, it's like about maybe a couple of years before I got into it. Um, but um, this was like this brings me back to not 2002, but more 2005 when I was like discovering this. Like, you know, it was great actually to get into it a couple of years late because it was like, oh my god, all this stuff to watch. I don't know, uh, I don't know if you were into it right at the beginning or not, but. Um, just like the idea that you had this treasure trove of all this stuff with all these like guys that you were just really starting to get into, and there's like two years or three years worth of uh, material that you could just go back and like plow through. That was amazing. I I kind of got in. Um, I was in somewhat in 2003, but I really got in kind of strangely enough around the Feinstein scandal, mm-hmm. where it was kind of almost like a with the TNA where they kind of pulled the talent. I kind of. Use that as a strangely enough a jumping on point when probably a few people were considering making that a jumping off point, not that not for any weird pervy reason, just it was a coincidence. But I remember I was in this weird position at the time of having to I was trying to keep up with the 2004 on as it happened, and at the same time when I had extra money, I was trying to start to build my collection from 2002 at the start, and it was weird even then you could see the difference. And it was kind of weird to be like, I'm getting these new shows, and then I'm getting from a different dealer that's going to be cheaper than the official dealer, these really bad fourth-generation copy VHSs of the first shows. But going back to when you said you were uh, kind of lost you know, the urge to wa- follow show by show, maybe, I think I was probably right around the end of the same period as you, where I think... The final year or two, I think, of Gabe's booking era, I think even he would probably admit that it was not his best work in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of fans probably kind of started to lose touch a bit over that period. Yes, although I will defend 2007 forever. And I, um, Alan and I, uh, Alan for Alan and I, I think, do a good job of that on uh, his uh, Dr. Keith Present show that we recorded a couple of years ago. Plug, plug. Um, but yeah, definitely by by '08, right before he left the company, they're just the buzz was gone. And you know, I do think it's possible that it's just impossible to keep that kind of buzz going for that many years. You know, I can't think of another company that did it. Um, you know, ECW certainly didn't. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I uh, you know, I don't blame him completely for that one, but. It it is fascinating to see like the ebbs and flows of the um, of the booking. I mean, I think ultimately though, you know, whatever you want to say about uh, Sapolsky as a booker, and he was booker from the beginning until uh, late two thousand eight. 
um, whatever you want to say about him, he certainly had a strength in creating a sense of prestige around ROH. You know, there were a lot of companies that were using a lot of those same guys that might have been a lot more creative than Sapolsky was, but they were not able to build the following, build the name, build the reputation, and just build the star power of the guys the way he was. You know, just something as simple as making the decision to put the world title on Samoa Joe and then making the decision that he's just going to keep it and keep it for uh, years and do these one-hour draws and, and all this stuff. Like, that's just... You know, that's a booking decision. You know, it's not like the height of creativity, but it's a it's a booking decision that obviously a lot of people had not done in a long time, and it made a huge difference with how popular ROH was. I mean, I think that Samoa Joe title reign is probably like the first thing that really made them like, oh, wow, this is like a serious thing. And, you know, Meltzer would talk about how he gave the vibe of the old school NWA champion and all that stuff. That's... Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you didn't you didn't hear about that stuff in IWA Mid South or in CZW or wherever. So, I think that uh, you know that there's a reason that ROH stood out um, from other indies, even if it didn't do all these, didn't use all these ideas first, I guess. Yeah, and I also think I mean, there's you know a lot of people will say about even some of the best bookers that a lot of them would start to kind of, if they were doing the same job for more than five years, you could see the kind of burnout and repeat of ideas. So I don't think there's any shame or even anything too negative about even saying that maybe his booking got a little bit stale towards the end. But I think on this podcast, we'll obviously have a lot of time to uh, go over the highs and the lows. So I think before we get get into the review itself, maybe the last thing we need to do is just give a little bit of background on what Ring of Honor was, maybe for, I mean, it's easy to think that everyone's in on this, and probably a lot of people listening will, but it's it's easy to forget that, you know, this company started 15 years ago, and there's there's people now that are, you know, we're probably toddlers that are now adult wrestling fans that are maybe wondering where this company started, how kind of how it came to be, what the landscape was, and it's not even quite frankly that easy to even go back because looking to try and do research, there's not a ton of articles like official long form articles on the history of ring of honor. There's not even a ton of podcasts about it. I've, I've seen a few and Sinclair broadcasting has let most of those early ring of honor shows go out of print. You can usually find them on eBay for reasonable prices, but for example, for Era of Honor, Honor Begins, I already had the show ripped to my computer, but going to high spots, there was one copy left that someone wanted to buy it. And you can find copies on eBay, too, but I don't think there's really an official means of getting those early shows other than just kind of scrounging for it. So, on the background of Ring of Honor, Ring of Honor was, um, I guess, what people would call the first super indie, where... It's an old story where they've told it over and over again, but uh, Rob Feinstein was the owner and still is of RF Video that lots of created lots of shoot interviews. And their other big thing that propped the company up was they had the rights, and I believe they still do, to all those ECW fan cams, the, the amateur shot house show footage of those ECW shows. And I think that's still to this day, they had some deal with Paul E where... They got those shows. Even after ECW sold to WWE, I think that's still your place to get those fan cams. And obviously, when ECW went out of business, 
they that create a huge hole in their you know tape selling business there was no ec there's no new ecw product coming in so what do you do you it's crazy to think that their solution was to start their own wrestling promotion to me that seems like if you were starting convenience store if you were running a successful convenience store and your donuts were selling really well it's just one of your items and then all of a sudden that donut company went out of business and your solution was Let's start our own donut company in addition to the convenience store so well, we have more donuts to sell. Well, devil's advocate here. What if the the donuts outsold all of your other products by like 10,000 to one? Yeah. <laughs> then maybe. I mean, I, and I was tr- doing some research for this. I was listening to actually a shoot interview Rob Feinstein did basically with himself. And he actually even says, I mean, Ring of Honor became such a – a priority for him that they basically almost stopped doing they they slowed the production of shoot interviews during that area era down to a crawl so basically this company that went from being you know sh- the home of selling shoot interviews and selling ecw fan cams and they sold some other stuff but those were kind of their bread and butter basically became just by and large the outfit for this promotion that they created and I think to people that are looking at now and going, what's so special about Ring of Honor? Indie wrestling today is heavily influenced by what Ring of Honor was then. And indie wrestling pre kind of the early to mid 2000s wasn't the indie wrestling that people know today. It was, there was good people there, but it was not just this in this huge fountain of great talent that was just being looked over. There were guys here and there, but, you know, I, I think part in great part because you had WWF, WCW, and ECW, a lot of those guys that were really good got picked up, you know, and there wasn't just this one kind of monolithic, monolithic company um, kind of just basically leaving all these great pieces of talent out to dry because at, a, at that point they weren't interested in guys of a certain size and even just the idea of there was the Super 8 tournament and the King of Indies tournaments and the idea of even in the early 2000s just companies going you know what we're going to take the best indie guys from this scene and a couple from this scene and we're going to fly them in to do one card and there'll be enough hardcore fans that will come to make it profitable that was still a fresh idea and Ring of Honor's idea was basically seeing stuff like the King of Indies where you had, you know, guys who came from the Texas Wrestling Academy like Brian Danielson and Spanky and taking guys from the Northeast like Homicide and Low Key and saying, what if we took those kind of super indie level roster and put them into an entire monthly promotion? Yeah. Well, the King of Indies is like a pretty important point, right? That was like what Gabe Sapolsky always points to. Was he at the King of Indies, or did he see the tape of it? I'm not even sure, but I remember... I forget if it was the Super 8 or the King of Indies, but I remember even those shows were... I think Meltzer was at one of those shows. Meltzer was at the King of Indies, for sure. And yeah. Alvarez, Brian Alvarez, wrestled at the King of Indies in a battle royal. Yeah, I remember that, too. Wasn't Super Dragon in that, too? For some reason, the idea of Super Dragon and Brian Alvarez in the same ring together... It's the strangest thing to this day to me. Yeah, I'm not. But, sh- I can't find the results of the, of the, um, of the battle royal. But the, in the actual tournament, um, you had Samoa Joe, Frankie Kazarian, Low Key, 
Um, Vincenzo Massaro, who I guess didn't really do too much after that, uh, unless I'm wrong and he went to Mexico or Japan and became a big star, so I could be ignorant about that. Um, Doug Williams, Adam Pierce, Donovan Morgan, Scoot Andrews, Christopher Daniels, Super Dragon, Bison Smith, Tony Jones, uh, obviously uh, American Dragon and Spanky and AJ Styles and Jardy France. So, I mean, you hear the list of those names. Very few of those names did not go on to become pretty big deals in uh, at least indie wrestling in the next few years. Mm-hmm. And I, we were having a discussion on uh, Messenger earlier this week about, well, how different was Ring of Honor from other indies? And, well, I didn't get enough results really to make me completely satisfied with talking about it with authority. The companies I could find, like JAPW and ECWA, which were some of the kind of the preeminent indies of that era, they would have a few of those guys on the shows, but they would fill out with a lot of other guys. And I guess... What kind of one of the early things that made Ring of Honor a big deal was that it kind of took those top three or four pieces from a few different scenes and just said, we're going to fly them all in. They're going to be consistently here. They're going to make us a priority. So they're going to be here every month. It's not going to be like some indies where maybe you have a guy that's going to make nine out of the 12 shows you run in a year. Generally, what what you'll see in Ring of Honor, even surprisingly right from the start, is... Unlike a lot of indies, if a guy shows up in Ring of Honor, unless they have a Japan commitment or they get signed by WWE, they're going to be showing up at every show. Yeah, with yeah, like you said, with a few exceptions, um, uh, American Dragon first couple of years definitely had some periods where he was in and out. But yeah, like once when they commit to a guy, whether it was like Loki or Christopher Daniels or um, you know the uh, the Maximos or Red, like those guys were reliably present at all those events. And they, that's why they were able to actually like build stuff. And I think that's the, that's the point I was going to hit at. I think you put it right on a tee, which is one of the other things that separated Ring of Honor is they were kind of able to make an indie product that, while still really based around wrestling, was a little bit episodic. And in part, they could do that because they, were, they eventually grew to be successful enough where they were putting out more than one show a month. And they had a roster that they could count on to be that would prioritize them so that they would be there for most of them would be there almost every show. So you could book things as an episodic nature and not have to worry about, oh, we booked this guy in an angle, but he's decided to flake out on us because someone offered him more. Right. And, you know, obviously other indie promotions did that with their local guys. But, you know, like the fact that the ROH could go into a uh, their first event and book a then right in front of the crowd, book the main event of the next event with the, the three top guys, uh, you know, I guess I think that was probably kind of unique, you know, especially when two of those guys were from kind of like the West Coast, um, mm-hmm. and this was an East Coast-based promotion. Um, I also do think that, like, you, you know, since ROH was, um, you know, filling RF Video's ECW void, I also think think it filled the ECW void in this part of the country. Like, you know, obviously you had CZW, and that was becoming, I think, fit more popular at the time, and there was Jersey All Pro, which was, you know, very good independent promotion. I think most people would, would agree. But ROH, it sort of filled the void of, like, this was a monthly Philadelphia thing, and it had the vibe of being on the cutting edge. They made sure that that was sort of like what they were promoting. 
and the fact that it wasn't CZW, it wasn't just doing ECW type stuff. It was making its own like sort of like revolution, right? Their uh, their slogan at the beginning was "We don't imitate, we innovate," and I think that that made a big difference too. It was like you know we're Philly, we have the hottest cutting edge wrestling in the country, and ROH is now the new version of that. And I you know I do think that that, that that's pretty cool. Like I think that. The idea that they were like, we're going to do the new cool thing. You know, before it was, you know, in your face, um, politically incorrect, uh, bloody, violent wrestling. And now it's like, oh, we, we're sophisticated now. We, we appreciate mat work and, and holds. And, you know, there really was not a major promotion in the U.S. that kind of had that mission statement, I don't think, where it was like, we are going to be wrestling oriented and we're not going to be focused on tables. And I, you know, I don't think there was a single table spot on the entire uh, card, right? Of this, of this first R. Uh, no, you're, uh, I think you're wrong there. I think the very first match. Oh, you're right. You're right. Well, well, quote unquote match. No, yeah. That doesn't we'll, we'll count. get to that. We'll get, we'll to, get that. That to that soon. But I think your larger point remains intact, which is, the scene around the era of, of the start of Ring of Honor was still full of people trying to fill the ECW void by being ECW. There was a lot of indies that just booked, you know, the old ECW guys that tried to create a product in that same vein. And I think it's really su- almost surprisingly smart that Ring of Honor, you know, even though they were directly, in a sense, trying to fill the ECW void more than anybody because they relied on ECW fans buying their those old tapes, they decided we're going to fill that void but with something different. And while there certainly is an ECW bit of influence and they took ideas from other things, I think one of the real draws of Ring of Honor was all in the, at this time period, you know, two major wrestling companies had died not very long previously. And even the WWE... I guess WWF at that time, you said earlier, you you were still enjoying it. And there still was a lot to enjoy, but nothing had that feel of something on the way up, of something new that you were, like, along for the ride. Everything kind of felt either stagnant or kind of slowly on the way down or, in some cases, just crash landing dramatically. And Ring of Honor, over the first two or three years, kind of became that... This is something a little bit new, and this is something that's on the way up. You know, it's th- there's that c- contagious excitement when you feel like, hey, you know, the crowds are getting a little bigger. I'm more people are talking about this every month. You know, there's some bigger names coming. They're running a little bit more, and even though that's all that stuff's kind of on the periphery of you actually just enjoying the shows, I really do think there's something that makes things a little more fun when you're kind of sensing that something's growing that you're kind of a fan of. Also the sense of like sort of like a, re- a rebellious thing. Like like the mainstream is doing this and fuck that. We're going to do this and it's cooler and it's different. Mm-hmm. And that's what ECW was. And that's what ROH was. That was, you know, they were doing something different uh, to a point. Yeah, I think the the best lesson from the early success of Ring of Honor is... Try and be the new thing. You know, you're, you're never going to break away by just imitating what was the last successful thing. Like how they always say about wrestling where, you know, the next Hulk Hogan wasn't anything like Hulk Hogan and the next Steve Austin isn't going to be anything like Steve Austin and so on. I think it's the same for wrestling. You know, 
ROH became the next ECW, but they made sure that they weren't, you know, ECW-ish. Yeah, and they're they're also the reason that I think ROH is a brand that has value, whereas TNA is a brand that has that's just basically been ridiculed. Yeah, because TNA, they're the no-name brand. Right, exactly. TNA tried to be WWE and just failed constantly, and ROH didn't. And so, even though maybe they never they didn't have as much money, they never had the star power that TNA had up until recently. Um, they are now a, a well-regarded, at least, brand of wrestling um, that WWE might want to purchase, as opposed to TNA, which is just like the same has the same shitty reputation that it had going back to when it started. <laughs> and uh, to Ring of Honor's credit, to where they came from, I think Dave Meltzer said in the past that if you rank, if you were to add together all the kind of affiliates that Sinclair airs Ring of Honor on, syndicated at different times on their different affiliates, they would do about 500,000 people a week. So in terms of audience, they are the second biggest promotion, and they probably spent a hell of a lot less than a lot of other companies, especially TNA, that tried to kind of grab that throne. Yeah, very much so. Um, the, uh, the other thing... That's uh, that's interesting. Is we were talking about this, um, you know, ROH, you know, kind of had their group of stars, you know, and they were plucked from different indies around. Um, but if you watch the very first show, it's still very much like a northeast indie. You know, you have a couple matches where you brought in guys from other parts of the country, and certainly the main event and all that stuff. But if you look up and down the card, it's really like. You don't really have that full like all star roster quite yet. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that that like you kind of mentioned. It's there's like a second wave of uh, of star power that gets in a few months into the promotion, but they're not there at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and so you know, in some ways, you watch the show and you're like, oh, maybe it's not that different from other indies. But obviously, we'll talk about as we go, like why it was. Yeah. I think that's uh, that should lead us right into the review. So I guess we'll start. This is the very first Ring of Honor show ever for those who want to watch. I know um, the Ring of Honor official YouTube account has uploaded a couple of the matches. I think they've uploaded Spanky and Jay Briscoe. And they, I mean, not, it was uh, Jay Briscoe versus Red. Amazing Red. Yeah, and they've uploaded, I think, Super Crazy versus Eddie Guerrero. So those can be watched for free. You can usually find this on eBay for... 10 to 20 dollars and i guess we'll go we'll end the show with the recommendation or not but so this show was february 23rd 2002 and i guess the technically the first thing that opens well, is actually, uh, bef- sorry okay um, no so no problem i want to talk about a couple things before we get actually into the match first of all um this was in philadelphia at a place called the murphy rec center and every roh show for the first like few months and then Almost every ROH show for like the first year uh, was at the Murphy Rec Center, except for a couple shows in Boston, a show in Pittsburgh, and a show eventually in New York in the first anniversary. And this was their Philly location until late 2003. So this was sort of like their ECW arena at the beginning. And it was basically just a gymnasium. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there was a basketball hoop in the background. Um, I I never was at a show at the Murphy Rec Center. I don't actually know if it even still exists. Um... 
how much would you say that this that place held? Like just based on eyeballing it. It's tough because they don't really. There's not a ton of outside brawling, so they don't really show the one side that often. But I would say I don't know 450 to 600, and it's weird because when they the few times they show kind of the backstage, it looks pretty cramped in the backstage too. Like it is very much a gym, you know. And you know, there's all sorts of gyms, but it's a gym that kind of feels like. It doesn't feel like a multi-purpose gym. It feels very much like you said. The banners are being hung on the basketball hoops. When guys take bumps on the outside, it's on a hardwood basketball floor where you can see still, like, all the markings. It's very much a gym. Yeah, it's it's yeah. They didn't do much to it. I remember in two thousand three when they first put in like lighting, you know, where they like brought in lights and they turned off the house lights. Like how crazy that that looked. So it's yeah, it's 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 an interesting vibe, but it certainly feels like an indie. Um, I will say that. But I'd say it looked like they had a pretty damn good crowd, considering this is like a first pass at an indie show at some gym in Philadelphia. You know, it looked like they had at least like. 300 people there maybe i'm going a little bit overboard but it seemed that way to me i I don't know um and the crowd was very reactive and very hot um i mean in terms of like loudness i i I couldn't tell the the camera was too grainy for me to tell just how hot the actual members of the audience were um (laughs) but i'll be looking for the net for the next show trying to figure that out um the other thing i wanted to mention before we started is just like this was february 2002 like just think about how long ago that was like, just in terms of, like, uh, you know, it was before TNA started, you know, before Brock Lesnar ever debuted uh, in on WWF TV. It was when Kurt Angle still had hair. Um, DVDs were not ubiquitous yet, right? Most of the early ROH shows were primarily sold on VHS tape. You know, they mm-hmm. later converted them to DVDs. Um, it was before the Iraq War started. Um <laughs> Before most people had ever heard of Barack Obama, uh, before, before Donald Trump even had a reality show, um, uh, how old was Justin Trudeau in 2002? Uh, he was just a glint in his father's eye. Uh, 31. I, I, yeah, okay. Or 30. I'm he was 30 a, years I'm, old. I'm a bad Canadian. Yeah, so J- Justin Trudeau was um, a very sexy 30 years old um, at that time, and... Uh, yeah, the most people did not have HD TVs at the time, you know. So you think of you think of yourself like as uh, as not uh, you know for us we think of 2002 as not being that long ago, right? We were both pretty much adults. I was uh, I was 18, so I was pretty close to that. But it's actually like you know it's a pretty damn long time ago when you when you think about it in the grand scheme of things. So the uh, so things were different. Um, and it's, uh, I just wanted to, so I didn't mean to cut you off, but I wanted to add that little bit of context before we actually got into uh, the, two, the world of 2002 indie wrestling. No, I think that's actually really good. That uh, For some reason, especially the Kurt Angle thing kind of blew my mind. Just the Kurt Angle has hair still. And I also, should, I guess you just don't, this is the first time, we're, this is the first episode and Matt's much more experienced than me. So just little things like, making sure that my co-host has has all said all his thoughts before I move on to the next thing. I'm still a little bit rough, but we'll progress through this, just like Ring of Honor is going to progress. Hobbs, so, you're, Hobbs, you're already the best podcast host in the business. Oh, that's... Well, I'm better than Joe Gagne, but other than uh, that... Who isn't? He'll, he'll, 
<laughs> I don't want to take you down with me. Mm-hmm. But, all right, so Ring of Honor, the Era of Honor begins February 23rd, 2002 at the Murphy Rec Center. The first thing you see on the show is technically it's a just a highlight video where it blares generic techno music, which we'll be hearing a lot of in early Ring of Honor. Well, we see, and I know how much you love it. You were talking to me earlier this week about that. Well, we see just a few seconds of every wrestler come out. But really the first kind of original content we see is the hit squad going to a van, I mean a bus pretty packed full of fans outside Canada that just got there from New York. And they try and kind of rev the crowd up and give them like a rah-rah Ring of Honor speech. And the only real notable thing for me from this was Spanky's in the New York bus. I don't know if he took it there. Was Actually, he can't do a song we'll talk about later. But he must have just been saying hi to the fans. And he's just holding a big bag of Wendy's. And I, I have, if anyone knows what Brian Kendrick's um, Wendy's order is, please get in touch with me. I picture him as like a single cheeseburger with a side of nuggets instead of fries, man. I have no idea what his beverage was. I've spent way too much time thinking about this. He doesn't seem like a Coke guy. I don't think he seems like a Sprite guy either. If anyone has any inside information about what Spanky, a.k.a. Brian Kendrick, likes to eat from Wendy's, contact us. We'll give information later. I'll I'll always remember you saying that Brian Kendrick doesn't look like a Coke guy. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe nowadays he's a little bit haggard. He looks like a different kind of Coke guy. Hey, yo. Anyway. um, It's just me. <laughs> the weird thing is, they then show us. They then show the hit squad going to a group of fans from Boston, and they kind of uh, cut the same kind of rah rah promo, getting the fans hyped up, telling them, you know, you're gonna kiss sports entertainment's ass goodbye. You know, are you ready to see the greatest wrestling ever? And I guess in a way, it's good to kind of introduce uh, to let us know, like, hey. This is kind of a big deal. People are traveling from all over the Northeast to come to this first show. But I always find it kind of weird where companies are telling you how great something is before that thing even really exists. And the fact is, before we even get to the first in-ring segment, um, we've spent about 10 minutes on this. Like, if you're, if you're watching the show for the first time, that's your first 10 minutes. Yeah, this was, I mean, this wasn't... I, all this stuff was terrible. I'm just going to go right out and say, like that, the opening techno video, why do we have a video uh, of a medley of people, like, entering the, like, you know, why show all that? I don't understand and it. they show all the entrances later. Like, it's right. not like we're going to show clips of the entrances because we're going to cut them out later. They show the entrances for each guy as they happen later. Yes, and, like, this, all this generic techno music on this show gave me, like, a headache. Like, I just, I... I don't remember this much techno, like crappy generic techno being in the culture at large in 2002. Um, You know, maybe I was uh, sheltered from it, but it just seems like (laughs) so unnecessary. And then these these Hit Squad videos, first of all, I... uh, I don't think I would have enjoyed being on that bus from New York. I don't know. Just something about it tells me that would not have been a... uh, It would have been an uncomfortable uh, 90-minute ride or however long they took to get or depending on where, I guess, where they picked everybody up. Um, and then you, you're stuck on the bus. Like, you're just you're sitting on the bus, literally, and these wrestlers just come on and start yelling at you about something that you have, like, doesn't, like you said, doesn't exist yet. Um, I don't know. I feel like even if they recorded this, 
they could have looked at it and been like, ah, oh, this didn't turn out so well. Maybe we don't have to include it, or maybe we can edit it a little bit instead yeah. of a literally unedited, like, 10-minute video of guys walking around and, you know, waiting to get on a bus and then trying to get people to chant Hit Squad even though they've never seen the Hit Squad before. I believe, actually, also... This is the first official Ring of Honor chant ever, which they prompt in the New York bus. They, I think, I have to think there can't be a reason why anyone would have ever chanted Ring of Honor before that. So, I think that is the very first Ring of Honor chant. Yes, and they were they were for the record Ring of Honor chants, not ROH chants. Nobody said ROH on this first show. That phrase did not exist yet. Um, I guess you know, but although you did see it on the uh, you know on the banner. Um, mm. But yeah, this was it was. Just it was it was a very bush league way to start it. That's fine. The promotion wasn't indie, so it's okay that it looked indie. But let's not pretend that it wasn't <laughs> that it didn't look indie. Um, and there'll be a lot more shitty techno music throughout the rest of the show. I uh, uh, it was just so generic. It just seemed so generic. That was what bugged me about it the most. Um, but this next segment will bug me a lot more, and I feel like uh, we will both have a lot to say about it. So. Um, I guess uh, we can we can mercifully move on to that. Okay, so the very fir- next segment we cut to about ten minutes in is the very first in ring segment in Ring of Honor history. And re- before I go into this, just remember this was a company that was sold. Well, we had just been told by the Hit Squad multiple times that Ring of Honor was going to be the thing that let us kiss sports entertainment's ass goodbye. This was going to be pure wrestling, you know. That's how Ring of Honor was sold as, and that's what they were largely looked as, even within those first few years. And this is how they start their first show. There's a tag team comes out, the Christopher Street Connection, which is Buffy and Mace. They were kind of a... They were... They played the overly, over-the-top, super stereotypical, effeminate kind of out gay people and Allison Danger was their manager and so they come out and you know they're wearing I think they're wearing boas at least one of them you know they're kissing fans who want to be kissed they uh they put a cowboy hat on one of the security guys heads you know and the fans are having a great time and the segment at first I mean it would seem kind of weird but you're completely distracted by the fact that this is also our introduction to the short-lived original Ring of Honor commentary team of Eric Gargiulo, who was a CZ, announcer for CZW, and Steve Carino doing color. And this is maybe, well, not maybe, this is by far the most homophobic kind of skeevy thing I've ever seen in wrestling history related to uh, sexual orientation. And think of how much the ground that covers in wrestling. Yeah. It's insane. It was insane. Like, I, I, you know, I mean, wrestling has been homophobic. Going back to the time that probably wrestling was invented, um, you know, you had these, you know, quote-unquote effeminate characters, you know, wink-wink uh, stuff about how they're gay, and, you know, certainly crowds chanting faggot was not a... Uh, was not something that was unusual in wrestling. You know, you had people like Adrian Adonis... And you know, di- you know, Adrian Street, just like diff- different people throughout the years, and you know, it was always a offensive portrayal. But this was so much more on the nose, and so much more aggressive in its homophobia, and almost violent in its hatred of what they were portraying. That 
it was on a level that I had never personally seen before. I actually just have I as I was watching this show, I was taking notes, and I think this is one of the few times we're just reading the notes before we kind of give more comments. It's just going to really illustrate what this is. Which it, so I just wrote basically anytime I thought something was really offensive, I wrote it down. So this is all happening while the Christopher Street connection is kind of just walking around ringside interacting with the crowd. Okay, first, Steve Carino is, quote, real offended, unquote, that the Christopher Street connection are here. Gargiulo mentions the Christopher Street connection, exchanging favors, and wonders if they have to do it in public. Carino says they should do it in the parking lot, so we don't have to see it. All the Christopher Street connection has done at this point in the show is put a hat on a security guard. Then, one of the Christopher Street connection, I think it was Buffy, or maybe Mace, I always mix them up, kisses a fan in the front row. Gargiulo immediately screams, he just kissed a fan! He just kissed a fan! And then Carino has to add in, and worse than that, he kissed a male fan! Which Gargiulo replies, that's disgusting! Then Buffy gets on the mic, and this is the first mic work in the ring, in Ring of Honor history. He says that Ring of Honor doesn't want their kind there, which prompts Gargiulo and Carino to both immediately shout, I don't, in unison, pretty much. And then the interesting part is the crowd, which I think if you watch and listen to the reaction, they were kind of having a good time, just kind of with this these fun, colorful characters. Because of this mic work and just because of maybe who the crowd are, they start chanting faggot. And then and, and it was – I'm sorry to interrupt the notes, but it, no, was, no problem. it was loud and like, you know, the commentary was bad, but this was really upsetting as well. <laughs> yeah, and – We'll get into more comments in a second, but Gargiulo here then goes on to say, like, he acts like he wants to say faggot too, but he stops himself. And then Creel kind of creepily says, like, oh, I wanted to hear you hear you say it. And then Gargiulo's like, go, I think he says he can't because it's written in his contract. And to me, it's laughable that one, indie announcers would have contracts and two, they'd be so thought out, oh, don't say faggot. Like, Well, also, unless like they know that Gargulo, Gargulo is just like so itching to say it all the time, they had to stipulate it in his contract. <laughs> Look, Eric, we know you've said it 20 times in this job interview. We're just going to put an extra clause in there. Just get it a pen. We'll amend it right now. Huh. Um, then Buffy tells a fan who's chanting faggot, I may be gay, but you're queer. And Gargiulo's response to this is to yell, he just admitted he was gay. Like, it was, like, the craziest thing, or also not also obvious from the entire way they conduct themselves. But also, he just, quote, he said, he just admitted he was gay, and I don't think he means happy. Like, literally, like, a comment of, like, an 11-year-old boy. Like, the way he reacted to this. Yeah, like... I wrote in my thing like he was a fourth grader. Like, there's this weird mix of really kind of vulgarness and anger, but also this kind of like childlike glee, like, oh, we can't say it. And it's so crazy that the guy's even gay, but we're also angry about it. Like, it's so weird. And at this point, Buffy says Ring of Honor will be the ring of homosexuals. And he starts making out with Mace and like full tongue. That was how far they went with the gimmick back then. And at this point, the Hit Squad runs in and attacks them. Now, before we get into the quick little Hit Squad thing, I just, I have to say, there was, there could be a way to do this angle 
that isn't horrible. I can see the a kernel of the idea of, hey, we're going to show this company's not about sports entertainment, so we're going to bring out kind of the most colorful act on the indies. We're going to have them kind of hijack the show. You know, Gargiulo and Creon talk about how they're not on the the sheet for the rundown. They're not supposed to be there. And then they're going to get destroyed by kind of the hit squad who kind of represent the company. And that'll be a visual way to show everybody that, hey, you know, Ring of Honor is not about sports entertainment. But the entire time you watch the segment, all you can focus on is Gargiulo and Carino outright, like, it, it, they're gay not even bashing, hinting. Bashing, yeah, they're, yeah. <laughs> they're not even hinting about it. They're not even trying. You know, there's a lot of times through the years, like Gold Dust and, and Billy and Chuck. You've heard commentators try and skirt the line of being edgy or trying to say things, but not quite. There's nothing like that. That they are literally. I mean, there's a point later on. I guess we'll just get to it. The first match in Ring of Honor history is an impromptu, about one minute squash of the Christopher Street connection by the Hit Squad. And then afterwards, they put Alice in Danger through a table. And when she gets put through the table, I forget if it's Gargiulo or Carino says something like, I bet she wishes that she managed a straight team now. Like, there's there's no even trying to kind of cr- go on the line between, oh, we're going to kind of talk like we just hate them because they're colorful characters. But you know what we really mean, wink. Like, they literally say that's what you get for hanging out with gay people. It's, uh, I, I don't even know, like, what to say. It's this, like, you know, people could say this was a different time, right? Because obviously we know this wouldn't fly, even in wrestling now, I don't think, um, with social media being what it is. But this was 2002. This wasn't, like, 1981, you know? Like, this was, this was unacceptable even then to present something this aggressively angry and homophobic. And I don't know why it wasn't a bigger thing at the time. You know, I've, like, looked up reviews. Like, I'm not trying to insult anybody personally. Um, But I've looked up reviews of this show, um, just things that other people have written over the years. And I don't see anyone talking about how completely disgustingly offensive this was to not only gay people, but the... uh, any person with a sense of, um, you know, social decency and empathy, um, to, to, to say that, you know, we're going to cut, we're going to bring a couple of people out there and just shame them for their sexuality, you know, whether it's a work or a shoot, and then, uh, say that violence is justified against them because of their sexual, I mean, it's like, I'm laughing, but it's, it's insane. It's insane how absolutely, like you said, um, overt they are about the homophobia I mean, like, I know that ROH obviously didn't, um, you know, the Christopher Street connection existed outside of ROH. That's why they were brought in. And I'm sure other promotions did similar stuff. But this is supposed to be the company that's about, like you said, about serious wrestling. And this was supposed to be their mission statement uh, uh, segment, where their mission statement is what the idea is that they are against gimmicks, which is obviously bullshit. Um, Just if you actually watch ROH. But then they they have to like cloud it with this creepy homophobia and this uh, this uh, over the top announcing by Carino and Gargiulo. I you know I don't 
I don't know what people were thinking. I don't know why this was okay. I don't know why this wasn't like news when it happened. To me, this came close to ruining the whole show. Like, if it wasn't for the fact that I got into ROH years later before I knew about this, probably would have turned me off to watching them at all. Honestly, I this was. Oh, sorry. No, it's just, this, that was how bad it was. Yeah, this was so bad. We had to talk about it like this week before the podcast. We both had to talk to each other, just like, can you believe how bad this comes off in rewatching? And I know you were pretty down about. You were going, you know, this was only 2002, and this was, people just accepted this, where I kind of looked at it the opposite way, which was, it really bummed me out, but it does kind of show how far we've come in the sense that no wrestling company out in the world today of any significance would do this in a million years, and if they did, they would get destroyed for doing this. And people are going to say, some people listening, I'm sure are going to be like, oh, you know, you're too sensitive, you know, blah, 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 you're such little snowflakes. To any of those people, I defy you to watch this segment and not tell me that by leaps and bounds, it is the most homophobic thing ever done in wrestling history. Yeah, and I'll go a step further. If someone says you're too sensitive, you're snowflakes, to reacting this way to homophobia, well, I don't even, I'm not even going to say go watch it. I'm just going to say go fuck yourself. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, seriously, like, yeah, you, you don't listen to our show. If that's that's the thing. That's yeah. that's that's how I feel about this. I'm going to call out anything that I think is offensive, racist, homophobic, misogynistic, because I don't think it's acceptable. And mm. and I think that um, I think that if WWE were to purchase this tape library, um, and I'm not, you know, I like leaving shows intact. They need to edit this out. This is not something that should be on the WWE Network. I know WWE has done, had, their own, had their share of terrible things, homophobic things, racist things. You know, the other thing that they did in the past, you know, 15 years that offends me the most, I think, is what they did with Muhammad Hassan. I think that was a completely offensive portrayal. Um, but this should not be on a wrestling show. This is terrible uh, in every possible way. I, um, I think it's an embarrassment to the company that they decided to start it like this. I don't know what they were thinking. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine I'm, if I was in that crowd of people, uh, that were chanting that I would have been extremely uncomfortable and maybe left. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I just think it's terrible. Um, and yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah. Um, even if you remove the gay element, it's not a good segment even then, because when this segment is over, we're 20 minutes into the show and we haven't seen a real match yet. Like, this is the first show of the company, and if you bought this tape 20 minutes in, you're not happy at all. I don't, I don't, I can't see many people happy 20 minutes in. Yeah, so they literally, their whole thing was they're trying to not be the stupidity of sports entertainment, right? They're supposed to be serious wrestling, you know. Kiss Sports Entertainment's ass goodbye. This is hard hitting in your face, you know, blah, 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 blah. They literally had a segment in which they presented the literal worst of pro wrestling to start their show. The worst went, of pro wrestling. The worst. Went, went further than WWE ever did in terms of being directly, like, you know, WWE has skirted, you know, xenophobia, homophobia, race, you know, 
relations, all sorts of things. But they always, you know, they, they're smart enough to walk the line. This went so far over the line and just became so direct. It it really did feel like you were listening to, like, almost an audio hate crime. Yeah, it's exactly what it was. And um, beyond that, you know, this was this was right around the time that Billy and Chuck were starting in WWF. They start, they, they'd shown up, what, like a month or so earlier? Um, and... You know that was bad too. I'm not defending that. That was really bad. That was that was homophobic, but it was. Um, they gave themselves some degree of plausible deniability, or at least implausible deniability. There's no deniability here at all. Uh, I, you know, I know we're a broken record on this, but it was. Yeah. It was so offensive to my sensibilities, and it, it sounds like yours too. That yeah, I know we're going over. In- we're going in circles a bit, but people have to understand, like, this kind of, like, vaguely traumatized us, I think, watching this. I think we both forgot how horrible this was. Right. I remember how bad – I remember the segment being bad. I remember when I first watched it in, like, maybe 05 because, I didn't, like I said, people didn't talk about this when it happened. They talked about the main event. Um, they did not talk about this. So I didn't know about it until probably 2005 when I got the DVD or the tape, I should say. And I thought it was pretty fucking bad then. But I hadn't watched it since then because I didn't want to. And just like you said, the commentary, like noticing that more, makes me realize just how over the top disgusting it was. Um, so it turned me off. But it, it just like it put me in a negative mood to start the show. Yeah, and that's not and, what you want. And I think the other thing is, I, I we both kind of talked about how you know ROH was ECW inspired, but they didn't try and be ECW. I feel like in some ways this is the most ECW Ring of Honor ever was, where it had that feeling of we were trying just so hard to shock you, but we're kind of being almost like fourth grader about it. And, you know, we put a woman through a table and we just have brash guys yelling about, you know, how you're here for fucking ROH, rah, rah. Like it, it, it felt very different than what the company would quickly establish itself as being, yet it's the first impression they gave. Yep, exactly. Uh, and I will say, just as an aside, so this was also like probably the way they, they wanted to build up the hit squad um, as being like their, you know, like their, uh, maybe their Dudley boys or whatever they wanted them to be. Never really quite materialized. Um, but they were um, Mafia, who is Dan Moff, and Monster Mac. And you know, Mons- you know, they like I said they didn't last that long as a tag team, but Moff ended up um, getting into better shape and became a pretty big part of uh, the first uh, three years or so of ROH, um, which you know maybe wouldn't have expected from watching this segment. Mm-hmm. So I think that's enough about that. Although, again, I think it's crazy to think the first match in Ring of Honor history is the hit squad beating the Christopher Street connection. And it's also, they cut another Raw Raw Ring of Honor promo, which we've already seen them do two of them to different groups of fans. So that's the third one in 20 minutes. Just a horrible way to start the show. But then we get to what I would finally call the first real match in Ring of Honor history. And the way they, which, should, have, the way they should have opened the DVD cold was with this match. Yes. is Jay Briscoe versus The Amazing Red. Now... For people that don't know the Amazing Red, because he's not—he still wrestles, but I don't think he's nearly as active, and he's been kind of slowed down with injuries. He was kind of of the 2000s, I would say, the first hot indie high flyer. The way there always seems to be one guy that kind of has that mantle above everyone else. Where it was Jack Evans, and then Pac, and Ricochet, and now we kind of got Will Osprey. Uh, 
when people really started paying attention to U.S. indies and it started to kind of grow as a scene, I feel like he was kind of the first flyer that was like the hot guy. Yeah, definitely um, for this era, you know, where it was like you had the the super indie era. Like, yeah, it was Red was kind of, especially in the East Coast. Like, he was the guy on the scene. He was a main eventer in a lot of those uh, promotions too. Yeah. And the cra- the first crazy thing you think of is if you think of the Briscoes these days, you think of these big burly guys with the big beards and the ever-changing hairstyles. And they're maybe not huge burly, but, you know, they're muscular guys. And you come out and see this and you see Jay Briscoe looking, you know, got some, got some zits. He's young, got the little chin strap beard, shaved head, singlet, kind of shrimpy. And... He has none of that kind of redneck kind of crazy charisma he would develop. He's he's very much an eighteen year old boy, and it's he's a young eighteen year old too. Like I think he turned eighteen a month before this show. But he was already he was able to grow a beard, which is better than I could say for myself at eighteen. So, <laughs> well, a chin strap, but sure. Um, yeah, it, and it's crazy to think both these guys were eighteen, and so the match itself in what's going to become kind of a pattern for the show, it doesn't go on that long. And it's the first match where I'm going to have to do something we'll probably have to do a lot on this show, which is kind of compare what we would have thought of it then to kind of what we see it as now. Because I think at the time, this probably would have been a lot better to me. I still enjoyed it in 2017, but it is very much... A kind of dated match where they're doing big moves. They're not doing a ton other than big moves. They're you know they're trying really hard. They're not going that long. But when something's not built on kind of story and selling and stuff like that, those moves kind of date themselves a bit. Well, yeah. I thought both looked really good in, in certain ways. I thought uh, Red's kicks looked really great. Uh, like they they kind of were f- really fast while still kind of looking impactful even though they were kind of showy which i think a lot of guys can't pull off i think um jay jay's offense looked really good i thought and it's crazy how good just some of the stuff he could do for being 18 was he pulls out a muscle buster which i forgot he did you know this is months before samoa joe shows up and it actually kind of looks better i think than samoa joe's muscle buster yeah so like I mean, I have a lot of the same thoughts. Like, first of all, the first thing I know I put down in my notes was though, the Briscoes are like they did a promo and they're they're, they're awkward teens, right? But Red's promo I think is even more awkward. Um, he was not good. They need these guys were not good at promos. They're like, <laughs> you know, Red was just like, I'm the only member of the SAT that wrestles singles. Like, just like, okay, like doesn't really show much personality. But the crowd is really hot for them. Like, um, they were really into the match and, you know, they, there was, you know, good opening back and forth. I agree with you about the, uh, about the kicks from red and, uh, you know, Jay's offense was cool. Good, big boot. Um, but Jay's muscle buster was so early in the match. Like, this is like, you know, the kind of stuff people talk about when it comes to indie wrestling, as far as, um, you know, muscle, like, you know, like just like big moves, like way too early, no context. I actually wrote down in my notes quote shockingly the selling is poor um, <laughs> um and it was you know they you know jay uh the uh, jay hits the muscle buster jay hits the jay driller um and um red kicks out and by the way i think the jay driller might be the most kicked out of finisher ever 
in wrestling, and I'm going to actually keep a tally, starting with this show, of how many times people kick out of the J-Driller. So we have one. In the very first time it was ever used, uh, right here. Um, and then the very next offensive move is by Red. I made sure to note that right after the, the J-Driller. Um, the very next offensive move is by Red. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I, the Red Alert um, kind of missed when he when Red did it. Kind of sort of became a uh, um, a leg drop. But this is like pretty much exactly what you'd expect from two very good but very green uh, young indie wrestlers in eight minutes, which is basically they do a lot of cool moves. Their selling is non-existent, and uh, that's and there's really not much sense of escalation in the match. Yeah. It really is just, let's throw everything out there and in this short amount of time. And I will say, you know, I wouldn't call this by any means a great match or maybe even not a good match, but it's it's still fun to watch, and at least in my opinion. And at eight minutes, or right around eight minutes, I don't think it should have gone any longer than it did. I think it, they found the right amount of time for the kind of match they were doing. I think one thing, the couple things that were my biggest nitpicks, other than just the basic things we've gone over, was Garjula at the start go, starts talking about how, you know, Jay's the grappler and Red's the high flyer. I think Jay goes to the top rope more than Red in this match, and he gets caught almost every time. And I think Jay, Red throws more punches than Jay in this match. So it's kind of funny. It was I think this is the first of a couple times where... The commentary, even though they're doing, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, taped commentary well after the show was done, they kind of lead the commentary in a direction the match isn't going to go in. I'm, I'm actually not sure if the commentary at the early shows were taped. Um, I know they certainly became taped shortly thereafter, but I'm not positive if they were taped at this one. I'd, I'd actually be curious to see if someone knows for sure. I think it was because there's also a segment later where we see Steve Carino backstage, and it, it just seems like that... I, there's just reasons and the way it sounded that makes me think it it was taped. But my other big, huge flaw in this match is there is a spot here that is I hate. Sometimes I think the phrase "business exposing" is kind of cringy and annoying and overused. But there's no better way to describe this where he um, Jay Briscoe was going to do a move off the top rope. Red kind of stuns him, and so Jay's kind of st- sitting on on the top turnbuckle. Uh-huh, yeah. Red goes across the ring to the other turnbuckle and climbs to the top and jumps off, and Jay spears him, except J- Red only gets halfway across the ring. Like, it's one of those moves where there is no conceivable way he could have gotten across, he, uh, completely across the ring from end to end. He literally only did that move to put himself in position to be countered. Like, it yeah. looks completely ridiculous. Yeah, that's, yeah. It's, it's one of those, yeah, it's where it's like, what were you, what could you possibly have been trying to do there? Yeah. Yeah, I I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like, all right, these are 18-year-old guys, like, that didn't totally know what they were doing yet, so they were just gonna yeah. do a lot of moves. And that's literally all it is. And uh, if you can tolerate that, it was fun. Uh, if you can't tolerate that, then you will not be able to tolerate this. Yeah, and other than that, I will say, you know, like, just to sum up, like you said, fun, you know, impressive that they could do the kind of things they were doing for 18 minutes. They worked their butts off, but eight I think minutes. it's also... Oh, eight minutes. Oops, sorry. Um, I think it's also safe to say they both got significantly better. Yeah, and, and obviously, especially Jay Briscoe. Like, yes. 
who became a legitimately great wrestler. But yeah, it was um, it was something. By the way, one thing that we skipped, and I think this is important if we're going to be reviewing Ring of Honor shows, is the Code of Honor. Um, yes. The Code of Honor um, that was sort of like the mission statement of ROH early on, um, and I uh, I have the original Code of Honor written down. Oh here. wow. Yeah. So the original Code of Honor, which is kind of what made ROH ROH at the beginning, was uh, there were five rules. Um, one was you must shake hands before and after every match, um, and everyone uh, up to a point followed this. Even when new guys were like unconscious, someone would come and like just like pick up their hand and shake it. Um, two, no outside interference, which was a big deal in early ROH, and actually something that very much appealed to me because that was something that you know in the Attitude Era, in the ECW Era, definitely was overdone. So that was very refreshing. Um, Three was no sneak attacks, which I'm not totally clear on what that means. Like, people were definitely sneak attacked. Um, like, I- I'm not totally clear on what that means. Um, no harming officials was the fourth one, and I like that one too, because I was, I hated ref bumps. They were so overused. Um, now they're a little bit more sporadic, so I don't mind them as much, but I always thought ref bumps were really stupid. Um, I-, I just, like, you know, especially because guys would get bumped like very lightly and be unconscious for 12 minutes um i thought that was i always that was just of all like the very common wrestling tropes that was the one that always bothered me the most and then five no purposefully disqualifying oneself definitive winners by pinfall or submission only and um i i think all those were good for separate, you know, you know, people could say, oh, it's too indie-rific, too, you know, too ser- serious, all that stuff. But in 2002, that was a really cool breath of fresh air in American wrestling. I don't know if you agree or not. Oh, yeah, because people have to remember, in two- early 2002, we're not that far away from, like, the heyday of Vince Russo. So even if, if you hear Matt go down the rules and go, oh, some of that, you know, I like some of that in my wrestling sporadically – well, I do too, but wrestling was so just saturated with that in the previous few years that you almost kind of – this was kind of almost the pendulum swinging the other way, which was just people feeling like we have to kind of create a safe home where this stuff just doesn't exist because people have been getting it shoved down their throat so much. Yeah, so so that keep that in the back of your mind as we review all these matches. This is sort of like – that's sort of like the mission statement of ROH. These matches are going to be based on – Winners and losers, athleticism, and they're going to be clean. Mm-hmm. So then I think we can go to the next segment. And one thing I do want to point out is something Ring of Honor did. I, I forgot how much they did it early on. And that, quite frankly, modern indies could take a page out of. It's just quick little backstage promos and vignettes between almost every match. Like 30 seconds or a minute. And like you said, the Briscoes and Red Ones weren't good. But at least they were trying to kind of glue things together a little bit. And introduce and give, you to their stars, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and there was a little bit of angle stuff we can get to where, you know, nowadays, modern indie wrestling, a lot of promotions, it is literally all ring, no no promos at all. At most, maybe you get a promo for a guy after he wins a big tournament or something or a title, he'll do it in the ring. But Ring of Honor was kind of throughout the show full of these little tiny segments to kind of either introduce you, like you said, or set up something for the next show or plant a little seed somewhere. And I really do appreciate that. It breaks up the show. It makes things more entertaining. It makes you feel like you're seeing more than just a collection of matches. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and um, and you know who you're watching. Like you, uh, that's, that's important. Like just like a, a, I mean, it's not like too many of these promos were good. You know, most of them were pretty bad, but they uh, they existed, and that showed like it made it feel like more of a proper promotion as opposed to just like here's a bunch of matches. Yeah, and it's funny. I kind of hyped them up, but then before the next match, we get two short segments that are maybe maybe look stupid because they were pretty bad segments. We get a homicide segment where our first Ring of Honor introduction to homicide, where he is outside in some bulldozed over looking area where in New York, where he's talking about how this used to be his neighborhood. And it's such a weird segment where I would say it's a horribly awkward while also being kind of homicide tastic where you can, you can see his charisma and he's trying real hard to tell you how street he was, but he's also not quite as Ma- confident. Or making sense. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is where I live, man. This yep. is full. Oh, I can't believe. Like, you keep saying I can't. I, I think he keeps saying he can't believe what happened to his neighborhood, but doesn't yeah. really tell you. Yeah. And then the, 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 this will come into play later. The cherry on top is he finds a rubber chicken in his old neighborhood. Well, so first you have a little quick, quick Loki promo, and I wrote, Loki is not a great promo. And then I put, Homicide, also not a great promo, but at least he, <laughs> but at least he had charisma, and he did. Um, but, um, yeah, his, also, like, just the logic of his promo, like, didn't follow. He was like, um, like, my neighborhood is gone, that was the whole thing. Um, he's like, he goes, we used to survive in the streets. That's why we wear these masks. We want to hide our faces. And I'm just like, how does one of those clauses relate to the other one? Like, I, like, like you, you used to survive in the streets. That's why you wear the masks. You want to hide your face. Like, that's what, and how does any of that connect to each other? It doesn't make any sense. And then all I have is this chicken, which the announcers later said, okay, he found the chicken left in his neighborhood. It was a rubber chicken. But that, that was not what he said. Like, they're, they're, it just, I, I, it was very confusing, but um, I guess uh, you got to hear Homicide talk, and that was fun. Yeah, I, I think your description where he was a guy with charisma, but he had no idea what to do to cut a promo here. Yeah, yeah. he never became a really like good promo, but like no. I said he had his, he had his way about him. Let's say that it, him being Homicide kind of carried him through things. Yes, and he says, it's, it's going to be an honor to kick all your asses. That's what he says at the end of the promo. <laughs> One of the first of a lot of honor puns we are going to get to throughout this show, uh-huh. the history of, not, maybe not this episode, but in general. And then there's one other little quick, very brief segment where Xavier is giving encouragement to Eric the Towel Boy, which, again, at this point in the show, you know, Eric the Towel Boy was a guy who worked a little bit I guess on the indie scene, he's a shrimpy, very young-looking guy who we later see a segment of him toweling off the ropes as the crowd cheers. And I think it's just, again, we have to remind people, we're probably 30, 40 minutes into this show, and the amount of what I would consider sports entertainment to not sports entertainment (laughs) is a very high ratio, the opposite of which ROH was promising people. Yeah, I mean, it got better as the show went on, but yeah, it did. It was yeah. I mean, what like this like hard this serious hardcore wrestling promotion? Why even have this thing with this guy, the Towel Boy? Like I, I don't, I don't completely understand this, but 
there has to be more of a story, but yeah. we won't we won't dig. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then we'll get to finally another real wrestling match, and that would be Xavier versus Scoot Andrews, who are both guys that you know again are people that if you are only kind of a more recent indie fan, you probably haven't heard of at all. And Xavier will go on to some pretty big things in the company. He'll become their Ring of Honor's second ever champion, their first heel champion, the the first guy to really get an extended run with the title. And Scoot Andrews was a guy, I have to admit, I don't have a ton of experience watching him, but I do kind of remember realizing that I think he was around 34 at this time. He he was kind of one of the bigger indie names of kind of the era before the indie booms indie boom really happened. And I believe he has a promo right before this match where he talks about how the year before he made his name on the national scene. So obviously he had gotten to a certain point. But when you see the match here, it's funny. Xavier gets the bigger push going forward. But I honestly thought Scoot Andrews looked better than Xavier here. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I mean, I thought they they both looked fairly solid. Like, they were just, like, solid wrestlers. But, you know, it was only a 10-minute match. Um, And, um, you know, by the way, more generic techno for both of those guys. Um, Obviously... Scoot Andrews theme, which is like a, a techno remix of 2000... Because Scoot Andrews, by the way, is the Black Nature Boy. Yeah. So it's like this weird 2001 techno remix that like breaks down like this song almost seemed to invent dubstep like years before it happened it just kind of brown and it just oh it is so so it is on a night of regrettable music choices this is easily the worst what by the way what makes him the black nature boy because like it's previously like all the guys who were called nature boy you know they had the similar thing where they had the bleached hair and the robe and they strutted and stuff and at least at this point uh scoot andrews just is a guy. He walks to the ring. He's the guy. So like, I don't know like what that what that nickname is supposed to signify. But anyway, yes, uh, there's that. Um, but yeah, like unlike in the previous match, they actually do some chain wrestling. Um, they have a fast pace. Um, they you know they uh, they like there's like a flow to the match. Um, um, and uh, I don't know there's there's actual selling going on in the match. Um, so I thought they both looked pretty good, but yes, Scoot impressed me because, you know, I don't know how many ROA shows he did after this one. Definitely not that many, but he was, you know, he was a good wrestler. Like he, he knew, he knew what to do. It was probably, you know, at best, like a, if we're going to do this whole star rating thing, like two and three quarter, three star match, but you know, it was solid, I would say. And I, um, you know, it was, it's hard for me to say which guy I thought was better. Um, because, you know, obviously, like, I've seen great matches with Xavier, and, like, I already know, like, he's a capable wrestler. Um, he didn't seem to have a ton of charisma here, and it's still interesting that they decided to go with him as a heel. I guess maybe um, based, maybe based on what he did in other places that I've never seen. Um, but here, he was just fairly generic, and just they both seemed, they both seemed just solid, I would say. I would say... Maybe, I don't know how much this plays into it, but Xavier probably has, like, the most WWE perfect look of anyone on this card. He's got a really good build. He's got some bulk to him. He's got, like, a very, 
you know, good looking guy to the point where the crowd, this is the first time we hear AC Slater chants for yeah. him. And so This was before I guess Mario Lopez was on Access Hollywood or <laughs> or Extra, whichever one he does. I'm still waiting for those extra chants. <laughs> but um yeah, he 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 would be a guy that if he was a couple inches taller he probably would have been snatched up by WWE in an instant because he had that look. He almost gives off kind of a Tony Nese-ish vibe in terms of appearance, maybe without the beard. I, I think my bigger problem with Xavier is he's very punch-kicky in some parts of this match. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Xavier's horrible, but I also think the more punches you throw, the better the punches should be. And they're just kind of average, and he kind of relies on them a fair bit here. And you compare that to... Uh, Scoot, who has some a real nice kind of snappy short arm clothesline out of nowhere, and just he has a real you know compared to Red versus Jay Briscoe, where they're doing really huge moves, but you know you can tell they're still young. Here they're not doing moves quite as big, but you can tell, especially with Scoot. But with both of them, they have kind of a bit more of that polish. Yeah, there 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 are a couple of like awkward things like. Um Xavier kind of tries to do like a back, like almost like pancake spot, but almost drops Scoot like right on his head. Yeah, that was. Yeah, so there's little stuff that you know makes you feel like, oh yeah, it's still indies. Um, but you know, there's cool stuff too. Like there was a reversal from a sunset flip into like sort of a reverse DDT by Scoot. Um, some good stuff there. Um, and then Xavier just wins the kind of with a basic neck breaker. Like I said, yeah, some some good moves um, and better selling than previous matches, but it still feel, felt like, you know, kind of like a raw match, you know, just like a rushed yeah. version w- of what could have been a more dramatic match. And there is some roughness, like you said, there's the spot where Scoot, I don't know whose fault it was, where Scoot kind of on a pancake tie or backdrop type move kind of ends up falling basically head first. That could have been really scary. And there's also a spot where... Uh, where Xavier's hitting some moves and then he hits the ropes and comes back and Scoot has bumped and just is lying on his back and Xavier clearly wasn't expecting that. So he kind of just shrugs and then gives an elbow drop and then pulls Scoot back to his feet and hits the ropes again. So you, you're thinking, oh man, this has got to be a big spot to repeat it. What's he going to hit? And it's just like a running forearm. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't know what. I don't know why he felt the need to like repeat everything to get to that hot move, but yeah, maybe just nerves because you know it's clearly such a big event based on what they were all hyping. Um, yeah, but there was also another, um, you know, like uh, Scoot hits his finisher, the force of nature, and Xavier gets his foot on the ropes, and it's like already two matches. People are getting out of people's big moves. It's just like yeah, um, it's and. I- Oh, sorry. It's, a, it's just it's just it's just funny how they immediately go to their biggest moves, getting kicked out of, uh, in like the opening two matches of still just what is mostly a random indie show at this point. Yeah, and it it did. They were obviously trying to set up there will be a future matches between these guys, but it, it did kind of the match. I feel like I I thought I was I was enjoying this. You know, it wasn't a great match by any means, but it was enjoyable enough. But I felt like it was starting to lose steam near the end. And so this end part where, you know, Xavier clearly gets his foot under the ropes and Scoot basically just stops what he's doing and starts arguing with the ref, which leads to Xavier getting the win. It kind of just took the steam out of the end of the match. And I also thought it was pretty hilarious when... um, 
when when Scoo has, I mean, when Xavier has his foot under the ropes, Gargiulo asks Carino, did he get lucky or was that ring awareness, Steve? And Steve Carino's reply is, I don't know, but it was a lucky break for Xavier. And it's like, you're kind of giving the answer that you're going, I don't know if it was lucky or not, but it was lucky. It was just a weird commentary moment. Yeah. But, oh, and the one other thing I thought was funny was, uh, when Carino put over Xavier as being a student of the game because he got his start as a security guard oh, yes. for wrestling shows. I wrote that down too. That's pretty yeah. funny. And he he didn't protect the fans or the wrestlers because he was too busy watching the matches, studying things. I thought that is like the weirdest way to put over someone's dedication ever. Like he was such a big wrestling fan, became such a student of the game. He let like... He let your sister get punched in the face while, you know, he was watching the hot low-key versus red match in JAPW or something. Right. Big student of the game, so he did not do his job. Like, yeah. that's pretty much what we're getting at here. Um, so, overall, I think we both agree that was kind of, you know, it's not a horrible match, nothing super notable, but, you know. Sol- I say it's solidly good match, but, like, yeah. just like a raw match, not, like... Anything more than that. Yeah. So at that point, I don't know if there was any... I, I paid better attention to this to the kind of between-match segments um, later on in the review. I started taking more notice. But I think the next thing we have now is... Unless you have more to say about that match. No, I think we exhausted that particular uh, yeah. <laughs> match. The, the next thing we have is the Natural Born Sinners, which is Homicide and Boogaloo, versus the Boogie Knights. So all your boog... Quotia, quote, quotas are satisfied here of Mike Tobin and Danny Drake. The Boogie Knights gimmick is basically that they're from New York and they're from New York. And did I mention they're from New York? <laughs> they come out wearing New York stuff. They come out to the best around from the Karate Kid movie, which is a good choice. At least it was a song as opposed to just like generic, like, that's my, that's my techno impression. And the natural born sinners. It's strange, but you know, Homicide starting Ring of Honor was as a, was as a tag act, and he and Boogaloo come out in orange jumpsuits and horror movie masks. One has a Michael Myers mask. One has I don't know if it's a Leatherface mask or not. Well, they're, and, they're from the street, so they wear the masks. Yeah, you know that's you know I know whenever I get stuck up by somebody, they're always wearing like a Freddy Krueger mask. That's how I know they're legit, and. Um, I think Boogaloo has, like, a chainsaw. And Steve Carino and Gargiulo on commentary are trying so hard to put over how scary these two are. Like, all night the commentary is way too loud, and they're trying way too hard to put over everything to the point it seems fake. Well, they, say the same, they have the same, like, talking points about each wrestler that they yell, like, 75 times. Like, these guys are so... But these guys are so... Like, it's like... You hear that so many times. But... I think I think this is the worst they get in is other than the crazy homophobia. Like, homophobia. But <laughs> this this is um they 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 just start screaming about how everyone's scared of these guys, how promoters won't book them, how everyone in the back is scared of them, how brutal they're going to be, and then Boogaloo starts the match with like a minute or two of amateur chain wrestling. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and they're like, These guys are so dangerous and so scary. But they could also—they're also amateur champions. <laughs> it is, 
it is hilarious having to see, this is what I was referring to earlier where the commentary kind of works against these matches sometimes where it's hilarious to have to hear Gargiulo try and like work this into the narrative he just built like you were saying like oh but you know they're killers but they can kill you on the mat too like ooh <laughs> like it, it, it was pretty funny to hear like just again if this was taped they really should have watched it before they did the commentary maybe they do a rush job if that's the case but I have to think if they had really planned this out, they wouldn't have done stuff like that. Yeah, I, but who knows? Maybe they just had bad instincts. Like, that's possible, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, Gorgula, by the way, uh, clarifies the chicken situation. He says that the chicken is a symbol that homicide has nothing to go back to. So, you know, they're working on a deeper level there. The chicken is the signifier, and the signified has re- is related to the loss of the of urban decay. So, you know, they're actually, like, they're going on a pretty, uh, a pretty uh, graduate school level there. Yeah, this is like The Wire season six. Um, I think that's pretty crazy because, like, he found the chicken randomly in his old neighborhood. If I could just walk somewhere and find random chickens, I don't know. Life's looking pretty good to me. I I don't get it. But this match is—it's weird. It's—it's about seven minutes, but it really feels like it could have been half that length because it is nothing but a squash match, and I feel like a squash match would have more impact when it's just like. There are some big moves here, but I feel if you want to k- get guys over as killers, you do three or four minutes, you hit all your big moves, and then you go, you, you just end it. Right, and Where the, bo- the Boogie Knights maybe hit like three offensive moves in the entire yeah. match, yeah. They get a very brief hot tag, they get to do a dive at one point when everyone's hitting dives. But yeah, for the most part, this is a seven-minute squash match. I mean, at different points in the match, I believe Gargiulo and Karina both say they expect the natural-born sinners to win, so they're not even pretending, right. like, tr- trying to build any drama. It's just like, they're basically telling you, this is a squash. Um, I did come away impressed at how, uh, I think Homicide's offense looked great. He kind of hit most of his greatest hits here. He hit a great tope where Homicide's topes always look great, and they always look so reckless, and here he kind of go balls over the guardrail. Yeah. I thought, I thought, you know, the ace crusher, like he, he pulls out the cop killer later, you know, his, Oh, go on. Well, what's interesting is like for most of the match, I'd say Boogaloo actually gets more time to shine than homicide, but then homicide gets this hot tag and it's probably like one of the best defensive sequences of the night. Um, you know, I guess like does the half Nelson. They do a half Nelson clothesline double team suplex, which the crowd goes nuts for. So it's like it's it was a fairly decent way to put over, I guess, the quality of the natural born sinners' offense. It was interesting how much time Boogaloo got to shine, though, considering that he disappeared not too long after this. Yeah, and again, the choice of you know, we're going to come out these scary guys and I'm going to go right to, like, the double-leg takedown and kind of working you on the mat. And he wasn't bad at that at all, but it just, it did seem kind of counterproductive to the image that they and the commentators were trying to really sell them as. Like, it's just weird to see a guy come out in a in a Halloween Michael Myers mask and a guy come out in a leather face mask and then it's just, oh, yeah, you know, I'm from the streets, but I also took this collegiate wrestling class. You know, I was pretty good at Bantamweight, and <laughs> it was just weird. But, yeah, I think that helped. That yeah, I'm from the streets, and I had nobody. But, you know, like, my wrestling coach would uh, would check in very regularly, and we would we would go on lo- long trips on tournaments. And, you know, just, like, it's it's kind of funny, like, that, that like, the dissonance there. 
All I had was this tape of the 1996 Olympics. We were too poor to watch anything else. So I just watched that gold medal match over and over, and that's where I got these skills, man. But, um, yeah, it, it was an enjoyable squash. I think what you pointed out, the there, that double, that t- tiger suplex, while the guy is also getting hit with a lariat, I feel like that's something that wrestlers should lift. A tag team should lift that today because it looked really great, actually. And no one really does that now, I don't think. No, they don't. And, of course, those rubber chicken shots that uh, Homicide started hitting on the Boogie Nights at the end for the DQ were, were seemed actually like they probably hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we should get to the the finish is... For some reason, even though they've been dominating the match, Homicide and Boogaloo get frustrated while Homicide, and he brings out the rubber chicken. Again, we're supposed to be scared of these guys and they're psycho, but they also use a rubber chicken. And he starts wailing on the ru- wailing on the boogie nights with the rubber chicken, and we get our first disqualification in a, sh- you know, coming out supposed to shy away from that. But... But actually, I almost think that there's something to do with like showing that ROH is not ECW in the sense that like, oh, you would get disqualified for garbage shit, which you know yeah. so you could see, I could see it both ways. Ring of Honor is you know not about rubber chickens. You know we had to establish that early. <laughs> but uh, so Ref HC Loke disqualifies them, and then we get the post-match angle, which is going to lead to bigger things later on throughout the first year of Ring of Honor, where Homicide pulls out a spike and jabs it right in the ref H.C. Loke's head. H.C. Loke seems to uh, blade for a very extended period of time, and I don't know if it was just the quality of the blade job or the quality of like the kind of grainy camera video quality of this first release, but... There was a lot of blading, and you didn't get that impressive of a blade job out of it. No, but but at the same time, it's like it kind of worked in the sense that like his head was carved up as opposed to just gushing blood, and that does make sense if you're going to be like jabbed in the head with a spike a few times. Yeah, and later on, we get to an HC Loke uh, promo later, and actually there, the kind of the gig marks on his head look pretty gnarly. They're all kind of crusted over with blood. Yeah. And honestly, they look a lot worse than the blade job. Like, it, that's when you look at it and go, geez, you know, he really did cut himself pretty bad here. Well, maybe he just they just redid it backstage for, the, for that <laughs> promo. It's, I, I, I'm, I'm being serious. <laughs> wow, that would be crazy if they did. But honestly, that might be because... Those gig marks look pretty long and huge, and I can't imagine not getting an, a lot of blood out of those. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah, but you know, it does. Yeah, it definitely sets up some stuff that the cop killer on Loke was was really devastating, and um, you know, I guess it sets up the Carnage crew, who turned out to be you know one of the big ROH tag teams for a few years there. Yeah. So again, this is it's weird. We this is our second squash match. Out yeah. of the first four matches. Yeah, I would say the match was boring. The angle was surprisingly violent. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it's, I guess, the first kind of angle. We get, I guess you could, I wouldn't really count the Xavier Scoop kind of ref bump thing. I mean, not ref bump, but foot under the ropes thing as a angle. This is the first thing that's really kind of overtly leading to something bigger that feels like an angle. And, again, I, I enjoyed the... Uh, Homicide's offense. I felt like you could have cut this in half and made more of an impact, but and it's again a little bit of a weird thing where Ring of Honor is known for such long kind of letting the wrestlers work and long matches, and we're getting a lot of these pre- between match segments, and we're getting some angles, and we're getting 
two squashes in the first four matches. Yeah, this but, is something that I think, you know, within a year or two, a promotion would have done very differently. You know, a promotion with the, the mission statement of ROH, which is like, we wrestle here, you know? The fact that they did not let anyone go out and have a 15-minute, like, great wrestling match um, in the first half of the show, or pretty much at all, um, <laughs> is, uh, is interesting. Like, it's, it's a surprising choice. Yeah, and so we can go on to the next segment, which is we get to see the Christopher Street connection again. They have the hot for Spanky. Yes, um, one of them is selling and debating, saying that they don't know if they belong in Ring of Honor, and then the other sees Spanky dancing, and they decide that they do belong there, because they're gay and there's a hot guy there, so that means, of course... You know, that's worth going to a place where you're going to get the living shit beat out of you every month because, hey, you know, one hot guy in the world. But now, now, uh, listen, now, listen. I, I think this, the Christopher Street connection in general is a regressive gimmick. Like, it's kind of like we're going to make a spectacle of flamboyant gay men. And, like, you know, I'm not, you know, even when, as the, when they're faces, it's like, okay, like, this isn't great. But I would accept something like this. You know, if, like, this is what the, how they want to present the Christopher Street connection, like, sort of like, it's like, oh, you know, they're going to stick around because, you know, this guy's hot and, like, whatever. Again, it's regressive. It's not what I would do, but I wouldn't, like, go on a tear about it. But they just had to take it that one extra level, and it's just, like, it's so unnecessary. They, The Christopher Street Connection, they are good at playing that gimmick. There's no yeah. subtlety to that gimmick, and I can see why people would find it st- – I mean, it is a stereotype and why some might find that offensive. But they are good at playing that kind of over-the-top, pushing-the-button kind of – effeminate, stereotypical queens. Yeah. I mean, you know, in another world, in another context, I think, you know, it might even be empowering, but that's not what they're going for. So yeah. so I, I don't think it's uh, it's that in this case. Yeah. So um, that brings us to our next match, which is kind of the first of something that will become kind of a Ring of Honor staple, although with a different name, because on the back of the DVD, this is built as an ultimate aerial elimination match, and it will later, in kind of maybe a slightly modified form, just be something that will be called a scramble match. And it's a big multi-person elimination match. Brian XL versus Chris Devine versus Quiet Storm versus the SATs, Joe Maximo and Jose Maximo, and the Amazing Red. And... This match starts with a. We get special referee Mikey Whipwreck, and he comes in the ring. And before Amazing Red comes out, everyone else is already there. And he talks about how everyone in the ring is one of his student trainees, except for Brian XL, who he calls Bow Wow. But then when I looked up online, it credited uh, Brian XL as being trained by Mikey Whipwreck. So I'm not sure if he gets training afterwards or this was just selling for a comment, but. He finally brings out Red, and first, we just have to say how crazy it is that Mikey Whipwreck trained a bunch of these crazy high flyers. Like, to me, that's when you hear, like, Mr. Hughes trained A.R. Fox and these crazy high flyers today. That yeah. same kind of thing, where you go, there's a guy not associated with that style at all, yet that's who he seems to be pumping out. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess training maybe doesn't really incorporate that stuff so much. Like about you know like the 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 high flying that's more of something people do on their own i mean i don't know i guess i don't really know what i'm talking about so i should refrain from guessing oh that doesn't stop me but um 
Yeah, this is, I would say, probably the most dated match on the show because it is built, you know, again, any match, I don't have any problem with matches that are just crazy spot fests, but obviously when you're watching a show 15 years later, if a match is built just on crazy spots, there's always going to be new, crazier spots. But I think even judging it, I mean, there's stuff that still is pretty cool to see even 15 years later, but one thing you can tell the difference between this match and kind of the crazy spot fists of these days is this there's just a level of like mechanical polish that isn't there you know th- everything looks a little bit rougher everything looks a little bit like just even when stuff hits it looks a little bit more like oh they barely hit that sometimes mm-hmm. it, it, it's you know it's kind of where the standard of uh indie high flying was in the early 2000s i think well, on the bright side of this match is that we get to see why Red is so good because he's so much more like just compared to all these guys, he was so much faster and so much smoother than everything he did. Like everything in this match, well, I, I don't want to say everything. So much of this match was very like awkward. There's just a lot of like tumbles, but there wasn't a lot of smoothness to it, and so it would just like it just felt like you're just watching the same thing happen over and over again at a certain point, except when Red was in there. And he looked, like, on another level from all the other guys. Yeah, I mean, and he's definitely, you know, he's portrayed as the star pupil, and his uh, his performances live up to that. And this is the first match on the show, I think it goes around, I don't know, 15 minutes or so, where it gets some real time, obviously, but they kind of do that thing a lot of elimination matches do, where they want everyone to get their chance to shine, so basically almost all the eliminations come right near the end, just bam, 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 bam. Um, again, you know, it's crazy spot after crazy spot. There's dives, there's things that don't hit, there's things that barely hit. There's a moment where they're doing one of those kind of spots where one guy's suplexing another guy who's powerbombing a guy and all, and, you know, everyone's supposed to hit a spot all together. And the SAT get in position and Chris Devine and Quiet Storm aren't there yet. So they just have to kind of hold like, oh, we're going to hit something, we're going to hit something, but they just have to hold it which was another kind of rough-looking spot until everyone gets in position. But really, it's kind of crazy because there's a lot that happens in this match, but there's not much to say. It was just, there wasn't much, that you know, there's... It, it is something that Gabe would go back to over and over again throughout most of his Ring of Honor run. He's kind of paired it back now that he books in Evolve, in kind of modern-day Evolve, which is just... I want to break up the card with uh, just something crazy. I'm just going to throw out anywhere between four and six guys and tell them to go nuts and do whatever and preferably high flyers. And it's going to be kind of meaningless and kind of... And some of these matches turn out to be really good. This one, I would say, I don't think even by 2002 standards, it was great. I think it ages pretty poorly, even though, there again, there are still some few cool spots. I think my biggest lasting impression from it is uh, Mikey Whiprick selling exhaustion from watching the match by slumping on the ropes and then later, like, whooping the crowd up like it was Def Comedy Jam. Like, I can't, I don't know if I love that or hate that. Like, he was, you know, this idea that this guy who had trained most of the wrestlers was refing it and, like, he was doing everything he could to try and put these guys over in addition to what they were doing. Yeah, I mean, it's probably not a bad thing, all things considered. Um, but yeah, this match, like, it was, it was, I guess, entertaining for like the first five minutes or so because it was just like a whole bunch of stuff happening. And then that same stuff keeps happening and none of it's very good. So your eyes start to kind of roll back of your head a little bit. Like it's just, 
it wasn't interesting. You know what I mean? Like they were trying hard. I appreciated it, but it just like it was just very flat. You know, like just like all the other matches I mentioned, like no sense of ex- escalation. It was just like there was no there was no ebb and flow to it. It was just like a bunch of stuff, and it just never stopped happening. You know, and then you know you had the high spots. You know, the Spanish fly was a cool move. I think that's still a cool move, although you know people you know people do it like a one man Spanish fly. That's fairly yeah. common now, but I still think the 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 tag team one is a little bit cooler. Um, so you know that that wasn't bad. You know, and I think Quiet Storm winning was a little bit of a surprise, um, but yeah, it's just like. It was boring, and you know you don't want a ma- match with that much stuff happening to be boring. Um, I think uh, it's interesting that all these guys who are still very green, um, they decide to keep putting them in, and they do for the for all, you know for a lot of ROH's run, keep putting them in these big, complicated multi-man matches because I feel like those are harder than singles matches where you could just do something a little bit more basic and tell a story. So you know, I don't know. I feel like you're you're asking these guys to do a lot of heavy lifting by making those matches seem coordinated and smooth. Yeah, it just feels like they got very, like, from show one, pigeonholed as we kind of just want to have a crazy multi-man thing on most shows, and these are going to be our guys that do it regardless of maybe how good they are at doing it, some aspects of it. It's kind of like, this is the role we have slotted for you guys. I thought, I agree about the Spanish fly. I think I think it's just cooler when two guys do it. I mean, three guys do it because it takes more coordination for three guys to do something than two. And the Spanish fly really, I remember around this time period was kind of like the it move. Although I think the cop killer, when we're talking about moves that happened on the show was pretty big too. But I just remember the Spanish fly was one of those moves where you heard it described and was like, okay, I got to hear that. I got to see this because people keep telling me how crazy it was. And even though it seems a little more commonplace now, still a really cool move. I think the one other thing about this match that I got to bring up is a couple times the announcers and the wrestlers kind of almost acted like this was a six-man tag. I mean, a six-man tag instead of an elimination match where there could only be one winner. There, there's a couple times where wrestlers or the commentary act like someone just stabbed someone in the back for pinning someone or attacking someone when, I mean, it was a match where it's an elimination match. It's going to come down to one guy. And so the idea of, oh, red teams with the SAT sometimes, and one of the SAT just hit, hit red, like, it's it's a six-man elimination match. Like, what do you expect? Yeah, I uh, I agree. I uh, The commentary was not always particularly logical, and we'll get to some more stuff like that with that later. Yeah. So uh, I think that sums up that match pretty well, probably. And next we're getting our third squash match of the show, which is Prince Nana versus Eric the Towel Boy Tuttle. And it starts actually, it was kind of a cool shot, at least, where it starts with, we see Prince Nana talking to Rob Feinstein, the original owner of Ring of Honor. This is the first on-camera appearance of him officially, although if you watched the show, I noticed earlier in the show, you could kind of see him hanging out at the kind of at the back of the gym but you know he nana asks rob to find him an opponent he goes in the basement where uh eric the towel boy's pulling weights haha he's skinny and (laughs) trying to build weights he tells and then the match kind of i mean the camera kind of follows eric behind as he walks through the curtain into the ring which i felt was like kind of a cool shot for such a crappy squash and then prince nana wins in about a minute yeah, and it was like 
Yeah, the, the, what he won with was a cool move. It was sort of like it felt like a double arm, like belly to belly. I've seen it described as a double arm DVT, where he just lifts him like straight up in the air, and then he kind of comes down like on like almost like the top or like the back of his head. Um, yeah. So was, I mean, I, as far as squashes go, it was not bad, honestly. But it's still it's still just like it just seems like this the mission statement of this promotion did not match what they were presenting at all. Yeah. Again, you know. The thing Gabe always stressed, we talked about a bit a bit about this on the list of men learn, is this is supposed to you know this is a product that is other than the live ticket sales, it lives or dies on DVD and you know at this point VHS sales. That's all that's really that's bringing in the money, and angles don't sell tapes, you know, interviews don't sell tapes, matches sell tapes, and yet the whole undercard of the show is basically short matches, a little bit of angle work, and squashes. Maybe it was just that they did not have the guys to do the matches yet. Like I guess that's that's might be what like the the, the reason behind this. But I I do wonder though, because um, you know ROH changes you know gradually over the years um, in a lot of different points. But I wonder how much of the in the early era was Feinstein, you know Doug Gentry and Gabe. Like I wonder like who came up with what and like what the you know what the push and pull in the back was as far as like what like what they were going to do on the show and who really got to say the most and like what you know it's just I uh, you know I don't know if that's ever really been talked about but like who was the one pushing which thing yeah uh, it's because obviously the company does evolve, no pun intended, quite a bit through the first few years. And it could just be a matter of, you know, growing pains. You might set out to do something but not really know how to implement it. Or it really might be, you know, maybe Rob or Doug, you know, the other people that were kind of the big masterminds behind our video and behind, uh, behind you know, this company creatively. Maybe they had more of an influence. I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, I um yeah, and just like to clarify, because I don't know if we like said it quite quite clearly. So Rob Feinstein, who owned RF Video, um, he was the owner of Ring of Honor. Um, Doug Gentry was sort of his right hand man in RF Video, and like you know, very important person behind the scenes in ROH. And Sapolsky, who was um, uh, Paul Heyman's kind of like almost like his protege. Yeah. In, uh, in ECW, worked for you know started working for RF Video once ECW went out of business, and he became like the, his title in ROH was the Booker, like he was the Booker from the beginning. So and he would be the guy that would go on like Wrestling Observer Radio, Wrestling Observer Live at the time, and you know plug ROH to Meltzer and all that stuff. So he was always sort of like the public face of Ring of Honor in terms of promoting it and stuff. But you know things definitely were different when Feinstein and Gentry were still part of the company than they became after they left. So this clearly wasn't Gabe's pure vision at the time. You know, there was definitely a lot of influence by Feinstein, but I'm still not sure what was what. Yeah, and I, and I think it's good. That's one thing we forgot. Bad on me to not kind of introduce kind of the major players of Ring of Honor earlier when we were doing the background. And you, I think you summed, it up re- summed them up really well. I guess we should probably... I feel like we don't know enough about Doug Gentry, but that's I think that's a common thing because I know when uh, Voices of Wrestling did the honor roll project where they they also let people vote in addition to the top 50 Ring of Honor wrestlers, 
they had a separate list for kind of the non-wrestlers in Ring of Honor history, and I'm pretty sure Gabe remarked publicly that uh, he felt that Doug should have been ranked higher in the non-wrestlers for his importance to the company. And I know people, I've heard some people say, put it as um, that Doug is kind of responsible for Ring of Honor being alive today because he was kind of the connection that Art Rob had to uh, Carrie Silken, who ended up backing the company for many, many years and actually saved it kind of from going out of business about a year after its initial beginnings. Yeah, and we should mention Doug Gentry died, um, you know, very tragically young. In, I think, 2007? Um, I, I, yeah, I believe it was uh, an infection that spread to his heart, I think, and uh, he died of complications of that. Yeah, so um, that's why, you know, maybe you don't hear as much about him, although he had kind of faded into the background very quickly after the Feinstein scandal, which we'll, I guess, talk about, you know, however many years down the road when we get to that, that era. Um, yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, yeah, it's, I mean... Yeah, it's it's definitely possible that he should be ranked higher. But the thing is, there's really no way for us to know what exactly he did and didn't do. You know, it never really has been talked about. I would love to hear like a shoot interview with uh, Sapolsky, where he really like just goes into the early years of ROH and like this is how things went and this is how things like progressed and this is who who thought about who thought of what and who wanted to do what. You know, as as a ROH fan, I'm fascinated by that, but. That information is not really out there. Yeah. He has done some shoot interviews, but it's always focused more on the era kind of post-Rob. Uh-huh. So I don't know if we'll ever get that kind of stuff. I would be really fascinated into that stuff, too. So we're getting deeper into the card. Our next match is something a little bit different. It is a tag match between four Texas Wrestling Academy students. Texas Wrestling Academy was Shawn Michaels and... Um, Rudy Boy Gonzalez's famous kind of school that produced Brian Danielson, Spanky, who you would know as Brian Kendrick now, Michael Shane, and this match is Spanky and oh, I forgot how to pronounce it. Akai Ikea Loa. Ikea. Ikea Loa. I'll just call him Loa from here on out. Versus Michael Shane and Oz, and the stipulation. That one's, hard, that one's hard to pronounce too. Yeah, Oz, anyway, um, the stipulation we're told for this match is whoever gets the pin gets a Ring of Honor contract, and that's to me, is always a little weird when you have a stipulation for a tag match that only one person gets, because... Well, the, uh, the, uh, Gargiulo pointed that out, he was like, this is, like, this is illogical, basically, and... I I think it's silly for the announcer to point out how stupid their stipulation was. Yeah, it's it's I actually this is one of the only times I have a little bit of sympathy for him because I feel it's like kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. I will note the wrestlers do not wrestle the match to that stip. They uh, n- no partner ever gets mad at his partner for trying to pin. No one ever tries to break up their partner's pins. They just wrestle it like a straight up tag. Even though if your partner gets the pin here. They're getting the big benefit, and you're not getting anything. In fact, when, spoiler, Spanky gets the pin at the end, Loa just, like, shakes his hand afterwards. Like, hey, cool. So the other thing to note here is that I don't know if this is true or not. I assume it's true. The announcers talk about how they did these Texas Wrestling Academy boys did a 26-hour road trip from San Antonio to Philly to work the show, and that 
Loa has three or four herniated discs in his back and had to suffer through that through the drive. Yeah, they talk about that a lot. Um, and you know, you could definitely, you know, it sounds like it was probably true because uh, he was not. Uh, he was. He seemed to be moving very awkwardly the entire time. Yes, he was clear. It's hard to judge him because of that. I, w- I think it's safe to say he was clearly the worst guy in this match. He was very much punch, kick, slam, elbow drop. He moved kind of gingerly at some points. He took one kind of really gnarly looking bump where I think Oz throws him, goes to throw him over the ropes. And it's one of those moments where Loa basically just has to bump himself over the rope. And he lands really hard on his lower back or tailbone, which probably can't feel good if he really does have three or four herniated discs. But this is a match. Oh, one other thing. We're also told in this match that I, I love this because it's so indie, but I actually do like this. Where we're still not only does the winner get a Ring of Honor contract, but they get trans, man. Yeah. You win this match, you get plane tickets from now on. Like, it's such an indie thing to brag about. You don't have to drive if you win this match. But I have to imagine if you're an indie wrestler, like, if you follow indie wrestling, you know that's a real benefit. Like, yeah, I mean, it makes it, it, makes it realistic, which is, yeah. which is good. It is still such something you would only see. You know, you're never going to see that in mainstream wrestling, where he doesn't have to drive with three other guys for 26 hours if he wins this match. And by the way, you know, we were talking about how like ROH did, you know, up until the main event didn't really feature a long good wrestling match. Well, they had their opportunity right here with Spanky and Michael Shane, and I don't know like why they had to throw in these other two guys in their match. It seems like a big waste to Spanky because you know we'll get to the main event. Like those are like the three like indie stars of the moment. But Spanky was also considered among that like elite level of top indie guys at the time. You know, he was known for having great matches with American Dragon and stuff. And this seems like a big waste of him to have him in this tag match with guys that were clearly not even close to his level. And, you know, when Michael Shane and Spanky were wrestling one-on-one, it was by far the crispest wrestling on the show so far. Um, so, like, well, I don't know why they just didn't have those two guys just go out and have a real match. Yeah, it's I, – I could only assume that maybe – I don't know. I, I would think that maybe Rudy Boy or somebody maybe was pushing the, hey, could we get some of these other – I know you like Spanky and Michael Shane, but could we get these other guys a look? I think if that's the case – Maybe it's partly due to the lowest injury. Oz works very doesn't work that much of this match and doesn't really make an impression. Loa doesn't make really a positive impression. Like you said, this match is by far it's at its best when it's Spanky versus Michael Shane. And I would say Spanky, other than of people that wrestled on this show, other than the top two matches, which are the last two matches coming up, he is by far the most polished, smooth professional worker on the entire card. Yeah, I mean, for sure. It was the, and I'll I'll say even more, the best, (laughs) the the best wrestler on the entire card other than those guys, yeah. And luckily he does work a fair amount of this match. This match isn't great or anything, but it's a watchable 10-minute tag match. I really noticed the annoyingness of the commentators in this one because I was just like looking and watching for how long they spent without calling any moves. Like they would just like talk back and forth to each other about like these guys need to travel and they want to get all they want to get this and that and it's just like and it's just like that you go like like a good like two or three minutes without them actually calling anything that happens in the ring, and it's just like yeah that kind of says it all right there. And Gargiulo, like I wrote in my little review of this match, 
I wrote, Lowe is ruining this match, but it's because whenever he's in the ring, Gargiulo cannot talk about anything about, but the herniated discs in his back. And I would say almost every move Loa does, whether it's offense or defense, if it involves anything close to Loa's back, Gargiulo has to talk about how it's going to hurt his back. Yet Loa doesn't really sell his back in the match. Like no. it, it becomes so distracting where everything he does, Gargiulo has to relate it to the back somehow. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's like it's a clearly like real information that Gargiulo knew, but it wasn't like they were working the match in that way, where it was a no. thing. Gargiulo, um, um, and also there's a couple things, other things I noticed about the commentary. Well, one thing, by the way, uh, Loa, one thing he did do well, he had some very good chops. I noticed that, like he his chops were hard and they were loud and they seemed to hurt. Um, but one thing I did notice about him, Carino never said his name. He just kept calling him the Big Hawaiian. <laughs> to the point where I'm pretty sure that that Carino just like didn't bother to pay attention to what his name was, like because he never said it once. He just said the big Hawaiian, the big Hawaiian, the big Hawaiian. Um, and the other thing was um, Gargiulo when he was talking about um, Michael Shane, because you know Michael Shane, Matt Bentley is, um, I guess uh, Shawn Michaels is his real life cousin, and there's definitely a facial resemblance there. Um, he would talk about how like that Michael Shane like like his like his cousin, like he uses off, uh, high aerial moves as a defense. Most guys use it as an offense, but HBK used to use it as a defense. And I was trying to figure out what he meant by that. Like if he was just like making shit up or like is that, if there's actually something to that. Like do you think that that was actually a thing that Shawn Michaels did where he used aerial moves as a defense? Uh, no. I mean, what are what are the, even the, the moves that are Sean's most known for from the top? Like, the flying elbow drop, which isn't a defensive move. I guess the Maybe. moonsault, you could say. Like, he's like somebody, like someone whips him into the ropes, and he doesn't, or like, or like he's on the ropes, and someone's running at him, and he does a quick moonsault. I guess maybe that? I, I, I'm trying to think about it, because I, I don't know, like, what that even means, using yeah. using moves as a defense. I noticed that, too. It was just a really, and again, another weird comment from a, just a... A pretty poor night of commentary. Yeah. But it's weird. We haven't said too much about the match itself. But again, it was just the Spanky and Michael Shane segments were pretty fairly good. And nothing was too, other than Loa looking a little bit rough sometimes was really too bad. But this isn't a match that, I mean, I don't think Oz or Loa gets another booking after this. Shane and Spanky obviously do. And... I did feel I do feel kind of bad whenever people talk about Michael Shane, like the commentary talking about Michael Shane being Shawn Michaels' cousin. Because, I mean, I don't think Michael Shane was ever. I wouldn't call him a great talent by any means, but I do think he is a guy that that name and recognition saddled him far more than it helped. Because he even, like you said, he kind of resembles him. He kind of works a little bit like a like the cousin of Shawn Michaels would work, you would think. And it just, you know, rather than being his own thing, where if you look at the kind of two guys from that same school that left him in the dust, Spanky definitely has some Shawn Michael-esque qualities, but he kind of has this goofiness that makes it kind of completely his own thing. And obviously Brian Danielson, a completely different style in a lot of ways. But Michael Shane, you watch him, and he's a perfectly serviceable solid wrestler who just you know you're constantly told who he's from who his who his classmates were and he never lives up to that 
Well, it's one thing that TNA did a little better because they never really did that, right, with Michael Shane. They never, like, went over the top talking about Shawn Michaels. And they let him start using his real name, Matt Bentley. Unfortunately, the uh, the Bentley bounce did not make him a superstar. <laughs> it's no share of shuffle. Of all, but, the, of all the wrestlers in history to get their own, like, dance named after them, you would not expect it to be Michael Shane. <laughs> like, that's the crazy thing. Like, it, it, what must you think when you're, you're coming up and you're kind of good looking and you're going, man, I'm, I'm Shawn Michaels' cousin. And then years later, you're in TNA and you're going, I'm doing the Bentley bounce. Like, what a strange road this life has taken <laughs> me to. I don't know. But... A perfectly serviceable match. I keep saying that over and over, but it really was. Um, I, I feel like the kind of whenever you see kind of a group of students work a big new promotion, usually go balls to the wall, kind of trying to make an impression to get future bookings. I don't feel like they really did it. Did that here? I feel they just kind of worked the standard tag with Shane and Spanky working pretty hard. Fairly directionless, At, though, just like all the other matches. Yeah, there, not much of a story, not much, no real hot tag sequence. Not that every every tag match needs to have that, but there wasn't. Again, it was just four guys filling time adequately, which was kind of the story of the undercard, which was squashes and guys filling time to adequate results. Yep, um, Spanky obviously won. <laughs> I think that's not yes. not surprising to anybody. He got the pin. Yeah. And even oh, another weird thing is, obviously, Michael Shane would be back, too, even though this whole match was built around. Well, one guy wins and gets a contract. But, I mean, I guess we can move on to, we get another backstage segment where Mikey Weprick has super crazy, his old friend, act as a translator to inform all the guys in the Ultimate Aerial Elimination match that they'll be working a three-way tag the next month, which is, for me, reminds me of, like, when Domino's started selling sub sandwiches and you realized it was just all the old ingredients inside a bun <laughs> that they put on the pizza, that's definitely what this felt like, which was, hey, you know this match where all six guys just did crazy stuff? Next month, they're all going to do crazy stuff in the ring together again. Like, And it was also funny that he needed a translator when he, I guess, this, you know, the idea is that he trained pretty much all of them, but he still apparently did not know Spanish. Yeah, that's... That is interesting, actually, now that you mention it. Um, yeah. Of course, then, then you have the H.C. Loke segment where he just says fuck a lot. Yes, where he is on the phone to a mystery person, which will turn out to be Tony DeVito for the Carnage crew. And Wasn't it supposed it, to be someone else at first, and then they like that it, match didn't make the DVD or something? It was. When I was researching, I forget who. We'll have to look it up for that show. But I think there was a match where the Carnage crew was originally supposed to be H.C. Loke and somebody else, and for whatever reason it didn't work out, and then DeVito comes in and becomes the real tag partner. And the rest is history. Yes, the the, the most legendary part. Yeah, quote H.C. Uh, Loke, fuck the extreme official, bro. He's mad that they made him ref in, uh, in ROH. He's like, yeah. he should be a wrestler, he shouldn't have to pay his dues anymore. Yeah, he's done that enough. And, and again, it, you know, kind of goofy, but... I think I, this was a good angle. I, th I yeah. thought it was good, like just good, good booking. And again, something that indies don't do enough of these days, which is just have a hook to go buy the next show. You know, not that this is something you're gonna that's gonna sell a DVD on its own, but at least yeah. you know there's something that you're thinking about for the next show, like what's gonna happen. Yeah. 
And so next we go to the first half of what I'd say is a double main event, which is Eddie Guerrero versus Super Crazy for the IWA Intercontinental Intercontinental title match. Now it was vacant, right? Like they did not have a champion, right? Looking online, this was the this was to decide the first ever IWA Intercontinental title match. I couldn't find out in my limited research why the first IWA Intercontinental champion was being decided in Ring of Honor rather than in Puerto Rico, but they even mentioned at one point that the match is being filmed to be airing on Puerto Rican TV for IWA. I don't know why they didn't book that, but I don't know why they didn't book that match in IWA, but it happens here. And obviously this is during a time when um, Eddie Guerrero had been fired for, I think, drunk driving after he had already had a rehab stint during his WWE time, and this was kind of this short few month period where he worked uh the u.s indies and super crazy obviously is you know ecw mainstay has those ecw connections to the rf video people running ring of honor and when you see the ring introductions eddie clearly gets the biggest reaction one of the biggest reactions of the night crowd is super pumped to see him the reaction made me think that he was probably the reason why a bunch of these people bought tickets even though he um he worked other indies. I know he worked IWA Mid South against CM Punk, but I I have to think just based on the reaction that he was a big part of the show. He was he was his character was um was different than what I was used to because he like he didn't crack a smile the entire time he was on camera in the show. He just like had this angry like serious like snarl on his face in the match in his post match promo. Like I I don't I'd never really did seen him like kind of use that persona and I don't know what he was going for but it was I don't know it just it just stood out to me. The craziest thing is he comes right out like it starts right from his ring entrance where he comes through the curtain where he has that kind of snarl and that game face and it's so crazy because his theme music is smooth by Rob <laughs> by Santana and yeah. Rob Thomas so it's this weird combination of like grr, like the most intense guy. And fucking smooth is playing. Yeah, it's weird. Um, but like you said, the crowd was nuts for this. And the, the announcers were putting it over huge as this dream match. You know, Gargiulo was like, there was an RF video shoot interview where Guerrero said that Super Crazy would be a dream opponent, so ROH booked the match. You know, and their, and their wrestling was good. Um, but I'd say, to, considering how much they hyped it up, I thought the match was a little bit disappointing. Yeah, definitely. Um... The other thing I actually, before I get into the match, I, I kind of appreciated was Carino brings up this was a first-time match, and Gargiulo actually corrects him and says, no, they've already wrestled once in Puerto Rico. And for some reason, I just appreciate that little bit of honesty that you didn't need because it's so rare in wrestling to actually say, no, like, this isn't a first-time dream match. This is a second-time dream match. The announcers were absolutely at their best in this match, I would say. Yeah. They were definitely, I would say, I would agree with that. And... The other thing I would agree with, while I'm on my biggest streak of agreeing with you, I this was a pretty uh, somewhat, this was not a bad match, but this was easily the most disappointing match of the night, where at the ver- near the very end of the show, Eddie, after this match in the main event, Eddie Guerrero gives an interview about how he needs to refine the eye of the tiger and needs to get that hunger back because Ring of Honor is full of hungry young talent. And it's funny he says that, because if you watch this match, his performance is completely devoid of hunger. So maybe he was even reflecting on that, where 
it's a, it's a sh- pretty short match. It's ten minutes, and it's it's very much. Uh, I'm doing just enough to get by. I'm not I'm not ripping these people off, but I'm going to do just enough to pass through this match. Going to give them the hits at the end, and we're going to go home. And it's a ten minute match with three rest holds from Eddie. Eddie, who kind of controls the match, keeps kind of grounding the match to the point where Gargiulo and Kriana talk about how methodical it was. And it's almost like even you can sense a little bit of dis- disappointment even from them, because at one point they start talking about, oh, the, see, when these guys finally kick it into high gear, things are picking up. And then you realize they're saying that, but it's eight minutes into a ten-minute match. So yeah. it's it's not like they'll go on this crazy end run. They're they're they do have a kind of a hot final two minutes, but um, yeah, it, it it was not a bad match. It was probably the it's second, a, yeah, second best match. So it was a good match, I would say. Yeah, and you know, they did just enough. I I felt like you know Eddie kind of leads the match. You can tell and controls it, but I feel like when he he kind of spaced out Super Crazy's offense, and it made Super Crazy look real good. Because his offense looked, I thought Super Crazy's offense looked great, but you know most of the match is kind of Eddie kind of grounding things and slowly picking it up. He he breaks out a brainbuster on the floor fairly early though, which seemed kind of for how measured the rest of the match was kind of crazy, and it looked great. But yeah, yeah other the announcers the, didn't really even sell it like a big deal. They were just like, oh look, Eddie really is acting serious here, but no one's like, oh my god, brainbuster on the floor. Yeah, and like again, this is an unprotected gym floor, and so you would think you should react to it a bit, and it doesn't get the reaction it deserves. But yeah, just a ten minute match, and it's I guess what we have to remember is nowadays indie wrestling is kind of seen as this place where you kind of are going to indies. Some guys are still going just for a buck and to get by doing as little as possible. But for in, a lot of guys now in indies, we're in, the, you know, Cody Rhodes's and Drew Galloway's and guys like that, where the indies are where they kind of have to reprove themselves and rediscover their love of wrestling. You know, before kind of the first indie boom, that wasn't how veterans saw the indies. It was, well, my other opportunities are gone, but I still want to wrestle. I'm going to get by doing just enough. And these fans are going to be happy kind of seeing me play my greatest hits. And that's all I need to do. And that was very much what this performance was. Yeah, it, it was interesting that the announcers at one point referred to Super Crazy as an up-and-comer. Since, at least in America, I think his uh, most noteworthy days were behind him. Um, but, but yeah, you know, and like I said, the offense was good. I, I did think it was funny um, because like there was a little bit of a storyline where Eddie Guerrero was working Super Crazy's back. And Gargiulo was like, oh, Eddie always has really good psychology. And it's just like, well, in kayfabe terms, that's not psychology, right? That's just like you're trying to win by beating up an opponent. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. But the finish was pretty abrupt. You know, like, yeah, there was, Eddie hit a lot of good moves at the end, you know, good backbreaker, a good power bomb that Super Crazy kicks out of. But it ended just with, like, Eddie goes for the product splash, he rolls through because Super Crazy moves, goes for a tilt-to-whirl backbreaker, roll up. And it was like the first really big pin attempt by Super Crazy, and he won. So it was just like it was very quick, like yeah, like a decent Raw match, like like kind of like that Xavier match, only obviously a lot better than that. <laughs> yeah, again, second best match on the show. But I have to say, if I if I had bought this DVD or gone to the show for Super Crazy versus Eddie Guerrero, I would have been pretty disappointed. Yeah, I agree, and I guess you know, luckily. <laughs> You have um, something more to come. 
Yes, we have the main event, which is the match that sold the show. It's sold and stole. Low Key versus Brian Danielson versus well, Christopher Daniels. Versus American Dragon. He was not yet going by Brian Danielson. Okay, versus the American Dragon. And this is, you know, this is by far the best match on the show, needless to say. This was the only match that I would say was great on the show or even approaching great. And, you know, if, if Ring of Honor was a company that needed matches to sell shows, this is, luckily, this is what, this is a match that could sell a show at this point in Ring of Honor history. It's 20 minutes and... What I was struck by watching it after all these years is how how kind of um, they're really going for it in a way of they're not doing a ton of convoluted three-way spots that th- triple threat matches can fall into. There's a few, but they're kind of spaced out. And they're really and, good, the ones they do. Yeah, those are the highlights, I would say, of the match and the show, but they, they really make them count. And at the same time, there's another trope three-ways can fall into, which is... One guy's going to get hurt and sell for a hundred years while the other two have like an extended singles match. So that way we don't have to think about the problems of working a three-way match. That doesn't really happen much either. It, what more just happens is two guys do a quick little sequence. As soon as one bumps and kind of is down, the other one jumps in. And it, it, there's, it's, there's very much kind of a very quick pace that really works for me about that. And even there's a surprising number of submission attempts in this match. And every time there's a submission attempt, it gets broken up by the third guy that's not involved really quickly. Like, there's kind of an urgency to it that's sometimes missing in three-way matches. Like, it doesn't feel like they're constrained by it being a three-way. Like, they're still doing what they want to do. Yeah, and, oh my god, our Loki and Dragon, like, their offense was so much smoother and tighter than everyone else on the show. Um, Like, just, like, it's just so immediately apparent that these are, like, two not just great wrestlers for like their experience level, but like two guys that are like doing something completely revolutionary in their wrestling, at least by American standards. Like these were like two, basically like what dragon was 20 Loki was like 21, 22. And they just, they were on a different level of not only guys on this show, but guys in the WWF, um, guys who had been in WCW, just in terms of like the tightness of what they were doing, the smoothness of their offense, the speed at which they were doing things like, they were on like a whole other planet, um, and I think they proved that they really were that good over that over the many years that came after. And um, American Dragon and Loki. I was listening to uh, an episode of Between the Sheets podcast the other day, where Phil Schneider was talking about kind of indies from this era and talking about how American Dragon and Loki. That was one of the first kind of big indie touring matches where you would go out of your way to see them whenever they worked each other. And he made a point of how, as someone who watched indies live back then, they were, a lot of indies didn't have a lot of stiffness to them. That wasn't a big element of it. And he said they were just stiffer on another level. And even on the show where you have other wrestlers like the Hit Squad talking about things being hard-hitting, Low-Key and Dragon are clearly just on another level in terms of just how hard they're willing to kick and hit, how snug and just every how tight everything looks. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and and you know, like this match, you know, it had a little bit of a storyline. It's not like it like really built and built and built. You know, I think it was fairly like exciting throughout. Uh, there really weren't any lulls, but there also wasn't like this incredible crescendo either. Um, so it's not like the best match in ROH history, 
But in terms of like a mission statement of like the quality of action and the quality of execution that the top ROH matches are going to have, it was pretty incredible. I mean, I'm sure you uh, you were planning on going through some of the spots, but just some of like the ones that stood out to me, like um, um, Dragon has Daniel's leg like grapevine and almost like a you know like a like a back like like almost like a like a mutalock sort of scenario where he like bends back and like grapevines the. Uh, the arms and like a chicken wing but like while he's doing that um low-key like starts attacking him and they just start like fighting while daniel's leg is wrapped up in in uh, dragons and like dragon hits a northern light suplex on low-key while he still has daniel's leg locked uh trapped uh, up and then like he kind of spins it around like and goes underneath into like another kind of like weird submission and the crowd goes nuts for that and uh, Carino was like, what's Dragon going to be like when he's a 10-year veteran? And it was like, okay, well, that's the smartest thing Carino said uh, <laughs> in, the, in the entire thing. And then he says, this is the greatest pro wrestling show he's ever seen. And I was like, hmm, I feel like I've seen a lot with Carino on them that were better overall. But that's, that's another story. Then they do the uh, that's not how you do it spot where they're both like taking turns kicking uh, – Daniels in the back, and they kind of they stole that spot a few years later for the uh, Daniels versus Styles versus Samoa Joe famous three way from TNA. Um, but I think this one ends in a better way because they're like like sandwich kicking Daniels, and Daniels moves out of the way, and they both kick each other in the shins, which was I think a pretty intense way to end that spot. Mm-hmm. Um, then Dragon does like the low key head kicks, like the ones you know where like the guys on like on his knees and just like rapid fire kicks to the head. I guess they're like more like Kawada style head kicks. Yeah. And his are not as good as low keys. I will say that it's the one thing that Dragon did that wasn't super great. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. It was low key does it, does them to him earlier in the match, and so Dragon's trying to kind of one up him, and it's something he probably shouldn't have tried because. I guess it's a move you just have, a, have to have a lot of confidence and control on because those little Kawada kicks where you're basically doing these repeated little kicks right to the head, if you don't if you do not do it just right, it looks pretty bad if you're trying to be safe. And yeah, that's like you said, that's probably the one kind of rough spot in the entire match. But you covered a lot of the big spots. I think I would just, I'll, I'll point out that uh, even though obviously I think you and I are bigger fans of low-key and... American Dragon than Christopher Daniels, and while I think Loki and American Dragon were kind of in some ways the stars of the match, I think Christopher Daniels was kind of the glue that held it together because yeah. he he was willing to kind of be the stooge for this match, you know, be the guy who's kind of you know he really put over how badass Dragon and Key were because there's a a lot of the key spots in the match like the kicking spots and the submission spots are kind of built around. Basically, Key and Dragon are the two aces that are kind of having a competition of who can kick Christopher Daniels' ass the best. And, but I, you know, it, I think it kind of sums up who Christopher Daniels is, where he's kind of, he knows his role and he's giving enough to kind of, he's going to be that kind of guy. He'll, he'll let them kind of, you know, you watch this match and you come away thinking Dragon and Key are the top two guys in the company. And Daniels is going to have to be the crafty heel that cheats or schemes to find his way in there. And that's, exactly what it needed to be worked as yeah yeah daniels i mean he's such a pro and he yeah he he not only was able to really do all the things he needed to do to get the two other guys over but he also added like some color and personality to the match because that was one 
uh, thing that the other two guys were, I think, lacking at the time. You know, they their work was unbelievable, but they were not exactly flashy personalities. Yeah. Um, you know, I think if you look closely, if you squint a little bit, you could see uh, American Dragon's charisma uh, in there, but it wasn't nearly as obvious as it became. You know, he he was you know very stone faced, um, very just like I am going to do these moves. And, you know, I think Loki was always, like, Mr., like, intense and, you know, super self-serious. So I think what, what, what Daniels also brought to the match was fun. Like, this sense of, like, this is wrestling, this is fun, we're characters, we're wrestlers. Um, we're going to actually, like, entertain you besides just, like, put on this, like, clinic of intense athleticism. Mm-hmm. The best comedic moments in the whole match... Are because of, of, of the whole night are because of Christopher Daniels, and he just gives you know, Dragon and Key don't really have much of a personality at that point other than we're both really great kind of intense wrestlers that can hit hard, and so Daniels gives them something contrasting that they can play off of. You know, if it was just another guy with that same kind of vibe, I don't think the match would be as good. Yeah, I agree with that, and um, obviously. Uh, Loki and uh, Dragon, you know, they're fine with just the two of them. But it's a different thing, you know. It's a, yeah. It's and we'll see that uh, you know on the next uh, review that we do. And so overall, I would say this is a match that still really holds up. Uh, one of the, one of the best three matches ever, I would say. It's in it's in that upper echelon of I'd say probably a top five three way as far as ones that I've seen. I I, I would agree that's probably top five still for me, and. Looking at cage match, I saw Dave Meltzer, I guess at the time, give it four and a half. I think that's still a pretty fair rating. I think, And I think it's still, you know, there are matches that, you know, happened years and years ago that might be four and a half. And then you come back to them, they might be like three and a half. I think this holds up largely as whatever you would think about it then is kind of what you would think about it now. I think there's enough humor and a little bit of character work. And it just is a really well-worked match that it holds up. I mean, I mean... The athleticism of it holds up as well. Like, you know, you don't see too many, like, indie guys now that are so clearly good and cutting edge the way um, American Dragon and Loki were in, uh, in 2002. And then, of course, you have, like, the veteran uh, kind of, like, uh, psycho- psychological working that Daniel's added to it. So I think, yeah, I think it holds up. I could even, even like, I, I wouldn't myself, but if someone wanted to say this was like a five star match just based on the work, but also based on the historical significance, because, you know, we talked about this show. This show without this match was not a, not a particularly good show, right? Would you would agree with that? Yeah. Where, where do you think this company would have gone if they didn't have a match like this to no, end the show? Nowhere. Yeah, you know they a, I, they would have probably had another show, but like it's this is what sold them, like the like these the, low key in particular, but like these combinations of guys, like they needed these guys to hit a home run the way the show had been constructed, and and the way the show turned out, and I I think it's good to point out Gabe did, or whoever did it made a really smart choice making these guys the main event because n- nothing was going to follow it. And I think it really put over, no, these guys are what you should be focusing on. If you came here, if you bought the tape or came to the show for Eddie and Super Crazy, like, these are the guys you should keep coming back for. This is the future, you know. I think it worked even better than if they had, say, done a show where it was Eddie versus Low Key and Super Crazy versus Dragon. I think this works better because I think it kind of gives off the vibe of, like, 
these three don't need anyone to put them over. You know, they don't need the endorsement of veterans. They don't need to semi-main event for veterans. You know, they're already the future right now. Yeah, this this match made the company. And, you know, if, if we're going to, like, talk about booking decisions, yeah, like you said, making this match the main event and, you know, giving it the time and, you know, just having the trust in the guys, like, that's a great booking decision right there and clearly possibly the most important one they ever did because they, you know, this this event happened. It got it got buzz, legitimately got real good buzz. You know, Meltzer wrote about it, all that stuff. And 15 years later, it's the company is still a thing with an incredible legacy. So, and we're doing this podcast. And you know, if you got if you have us doing a podcast about you 15 years later, you know you did something right. Yeah. I don't do podcasts for anything unless Matt says, "Hey, do you want to do a podcast?" And I says, "Yes." It's a tough road to hoe, but uh, I managed <laughs> to get it done by simply asking once. Yeah, but so you know, great match, and even that that visual, that one of those final spots. It's not the very final spot, but Dragon has uh, Daniels and the cattle mutilation, and Loki just crushes them with a Phoenix Splash. That still is a great spot, even today. It looks fantastic. And the crowd is hotter for this than anything else on the show, other than maybe maybe Eddie's in ring introduction gets as big a reaction as the key spots here. Yeah. But after the match is done, where Key wins, he hits the key crusher on uh, D- Daniels to win. The crowd is, you know, we get more Ring of Honor chants, not ROH chants. We get the first ever, I think, match of the year chant. Um. You know, the crowd is going nuts. I think Karina calls it the best match he's ever seen, which I don't know if I would go that far. But it's the first time of the night that maybe his kind of hyperbolic statements actually seem a little bit justified. Yeah. And, again, it, it was... I don't know if we can overstate the importance of... It saved the show in a lot of ways. It gave people a reason to buy the DVD... And it, it set the right message the company needed. You know, there were so many things on the show where what they were telling you Ring of Honor was and what they were showing you Ring of Honor was weren't the same thing. And this match finally kind of lined up with what their what the talk was. I yeah, I would agree with that. It's it's finally like yeah, they they the the commentators were so annoying with their hype the entire show, and honestly, they were annoying with their hype during this match too. Like it was just it was too much. But at least. The wrestlers put in the the work to actually match what the announcers were saying. Yeah, and then we get a little post match in ring thing where uh, all three take turns getting on the mic. You know, Daniel says that he could beat either guy in singles matches. You know, Dragon points out that Loki didn't pin him, so yeah. And I know. will say this because you know Danielson or Dragon, he you know he had a reputation for years of being like a. You know, just like a, a Dean Malenko type wrestler, like you know, not a great promo. His delivery in his short promo was better than the pro- the delivery of most of the guys on the show. Um, I would say, including Loki, honestly, like he he was already like not terrible on promos. Yeah, yeah, he uh, he was never bad. You know, especially whenever the more he was just himself and not having to really spit out someone else's ideas, like if they were really involved, the more he could just be kind of to the point, Brian Danielson, I think the more perfectly good he, he seemed. And we get this little angle that, you know, low key decides, Hey, if you know, Danielson, if dragon, you want to face me and Daniels, you think you could beat both of us. 
let's have a round robin challenge the next month. You know, boom, you got your next show right there, three matches instead of one. And again, another really smart thing, you know, I'm not the hugest fan of three ways, but it really works well to be able to go, hey, if you like this match, we're basically going to like multiply it by three on the next show if you come back. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a smart move. And, you know, we'll talk about how well it worked pretty soon. Yeah, and um, other than that, we get a little Eddie Guerrero... Uh, did, did we mention that Daniels would not shake hands? Oh, yeah. Because yeah, that, like that was like, quote, the big yeah. angle on the show, right? Because everyone followed the code of honor except yeah. for Daniels. And that was like, I think, you. I remember when Sapolsky was on Wrestling Observer Live um, back in the, um, you know, back a couple months after this. And, like, that was, like, something that he was really proud of. Like, just, like, you know, we made it so easy to make a heel because everyone shook hands, but then Daniels didn't, and that immediately turned him heel. And, you know, Daniels became the top heel in the company for the first, like, couple of years. So that was, like, that was a big angle for them. Yeah. And, you know, they built – I feel like maybe a few more guys on the show could have really emphasized – and the announcers could have emphasized the handshake a bit more. I feel like they would do that in later shows. But seeing as how the whole kind of show was building up to – uh Daniel's, you know, doing the old, I'm going to pretend I'm going to shake your hands and then, like, smooth over my non-existent hair as I leave. You know, I feel that might have worked a little bit better if they had really emphasized even more the rest of the night how, like, look, everyone has to shake hands. But, yeah, it it, it does, does immediately establish him as the very kind of first heel in Ring of Honor other than the concept of homosexuality. And... <laughs> God. <laughs> that's the number one heel, but Daniels is a strong number two. And, um, yeah, it, it, and he's, he's the guy that has the chops to pull it off. You know, he's, you can tell just by his charisma, you know, and he, he has a little bit of a background acting. I don't think there's many other guys in the company that could have kind of pulled off what they're going to ask him to do for the next year. Yeah. And yeah, he did a great job. Um, and from there, we get the little Eddie Guerrero promo where... Uh, he still looks very angry. Yeah, see, uh, we kind of talked about before, but he talks about how, you know, you know, either he's slipping or, you know, he's just got to step his game up again. Ring of Honor is full of hungry young talent, and he wants to come back, which he does for exactly one show because WWF quickly resigns him. And I realize, I realize in my notes it's Eddie in this promo who refers to Super Crazy as an up-and-coming star, not the commentators. I think both of them might have. And I think Super Crazy was 28 or 29 at this point. So not old, but wasn't a rookie either. And everyone seemed to be kind of acting like he was going to be the next big thing when he was kind of already established as a wrestler in the U.S. Yeah, like I said, his career in the U.S. had already peaked by this point. Yeah. Yeah. And then we close out with a little highlight video, and we're told to come back next month for the Round Robin Challenge, which another, we will. Another techno highlight video, this time of just all everything that we just saw. I'm glad they stopped doing these after the first year or so. <laughs> Only like 11, 12 more of these to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be what ends this podcast. So, summing up the show... I think there's two ways you can look at the show from recommending it to people nowadays. I think if you if you are just really interested in seeing what some big stars like Danielson looked like and, and Kendrick looked like when they were young, this is an interesting curiosity. I think if you're a fan of modern indie wrestling and kind of just want to see how far it's changed in a lot of ways, I think this is an interesting curiosity. I think if you are 
not interested in any of that kind of historical stuff and you just want to watch a show for good wrestling, it's a very tricky sell because there's one really good match. But in today's world where wrestling is so plentiful, I don't know if I can recommend hunting down this DVD on eBay for that one match. Yeah, I would say... You know, it's like the first WrestleMania, right? It wasn't a good show, but it's historic, so it might be worth watching. But if that doesn't really matter to you, like, yeah, no, don't don't watch the show. Just uh, just find a video of the main event. The main event is definitely worth watching. That's like a yes. great match and also historic. So, uh, you know, I you know, like I like I said, like I this that main event, like I saw that maybe like a year after it happened, long before I really got into ROH. You know, it was just like a, a random video on the internet, but like. The full show, I, I only watched when I became like a completist, and you know, it's not it's not very good. It's it's just, and you know, like the opening angle I think is so disgusting that I think it should be wiped from history. Um, that's how bad I think it was, um, yeah. and offensive. But um, if you can, you know, again, if you care about ROH, it's definitely I'd say you should watch the first show. I mean, that's just to know where it was, and the main event is absolutely a must see if you're a fan of any of those guys are of that kind of wrestling in any way. Yeah. Yes. Um, if you can find a way to watch just that match, wink, wink, you know, it's worth going out of your way to see that match. But that should be it. Uh, one thing I'm going to bring up for this first episode is I have a blog where I review wrestling, and that is at work the hands dot wordpress.com no spaces and what i am going to do is i'm going to post reviews of each of these shows after the episodes go up and the reviews are going to be largely my what i've already talked about here since i'm using the reviews and notes so i would say if you actually are listening to this podcast you don't really necessarily need to go there and read the reviews but if for some reason you ever want to go back and see it in the printed word it's there if you want to uh, send us an email maybe we'll eventually set up a podcast email but for now if you want to go to workthehands at gmail.com with any questions or ideas or anything open to listening to that and ignoring that or replying and stealing it whatever you whatever floats my boat what's that email address again workthehands at gmail.com thank you and we, we might end up setting up I think maybe just one for the podcast through but the years but it's not it doesn't exist yet so don't send yet. any emails to it yet yes we'll set this up quickly before we uh, post the show but yeah that'll be it and um, we'll be back Pretty soon, I don't. Well, we can't promise an exact time, but pretty soon with the round robin challenge, which is ROH's second show. I know that I had a lot of fun doing this, so I'm looking forward to watching the next show soon. Yeah, I, I had a lot of fun doing this too. So I imagine we'll probably come back fairly quickly. This isn't going to be a show where we have probably a set regular schedule. We're kind of going to do it as our schedule and interest permits. But luckily, it's kind of the show's kind of what they call evergreen, where. We're not really time-sensitive, and as we build a library, you'll just be happy to revisit the hours and hours of, yeah, of course. our burgeoning podcast. And, and I do, before we go, just want to thank, as always, the Cubs fan for running thecubsfan.com and posting these shows. Um, and you can go to thecubsfan.com and check out this, my other show, List Them and Learn, the Justin Shapir show, and of course, even though we um, teased him earlier, the, uh, the great our, uh, podcast father, uh, Joe Gagne who uh, gave us our big break in this crazy world. Um, uh, and his uh, 
the whole archive of Joe versus the world is up there, including me talking about ROH uh, over a decade ago. Yes. Thanks again. Yeah, I, I we have to thank Cubs a lot for hosting us. We have to thank yeah, and everyone else that really kind of started everyone kind of in our little group down the podcast trail. All right. Thank you. And again, this has been through the years. That's T H R O H the years. And uh, we'll see you soon. We'll be back.